like them because they keep people from locking in. But one of the things that I wanted to make sure um, I did in this conversation is not interrupt you. Because <laughs> uh, it's, it's very frustrating for me when um, I'm, I'm hearing people talk in these what should be long-form conversations about very important and nuanced things. And, you know, I think one of the things that happens is people are very concerned with letting you say things that is going to get them in trouble or get their channel in trouble. Like there's a, there's people that are doing a lot of self-censoring. And I think they're doing that also when they have these conversations with you because they want to establish right away that they have problems with you. And they have problems with some of the positions that a lot of people have problems with. I was one of those people. So when I had heard of you in the past, before I had read your book and before I'd met you, I had no information on you. But there was this narrative, and this narrative was you were anti-vax, and you, were, you believed in pseudoscience, and you were kind of loony. I didn't look into it at all. I just took it at face value because that's what everybody had said. And in my mind, vaccines have been one of the most important medical advancements in human history, saved countless lives, protected children. And I, I thought very strongly that they were important. I didn't have any information on that either. This is also just a narrative that I've adopted from cursory reading of news articles and, you know, not really getting into the subject at all. <sighs> then the pandemic happens. And I had quite a few very reasonable liberal people, rational people, people that I, I, I trusted their mind, recommend the real Anthony Fauci, your book. And I'm like, Robert Kennedy wrote a book about, the, about Anthony Fauci? Like, what is this going to be about? Like, this is my initial reaction. You've got this, what I perceive to be a kind of fringy thinking, you know, almost conspiracy theorist type person that's not based in fact what their argument was. And he had written a book on Anthony Fauci. And this was right around the time where I was, you know, I was very concerned with the way things were going, that people were just blindly trusting that there was only one way out of this. That was, that was kind of bothering me, particularly when I had known that so many people had gotten the virus had been fine. So I'm like, well, what is, what's the reality of this? So then I read the book. And I've talked about it multiple times on the podcast, but if what you were saying in that book was not true, I do not understand how you are not being sued. You, you, you would instantly, immediately be sued. The book was very successful. It sold a lot of copies, but it was mysteriously absent from certain, certain bestseller lists. People were not promoting that book at all, but through word of mouth and through the time that we live in, through this time where there was so much uncertainty and people were very confused and also suspicious. They were suspicious that they're being told a very a, a narrative and they were starting to remember that, hey, this has happened in the past. These kind of narratives about medications, these are, they have happened in the past. They just never happened where this is like the whole country is being convinced that this is the way to do it. So I read your book. And by the end of the book, it was so, it was so disturbing that sometimes I had to put it away and just read fiction for a few days. I was like, I don't want this in my head right now. You know, because I listen on audio. And a lot of times I'm listening in the sauna. So I'm listening while I'm already getting tortured. So it's, it's 185 degrees and I'm listening to this, this book that if it's telling the truth, just about the AIDS crisis. 
just about the AIDS crisis, just about the use of AZT, just about the, all of it, all of it. Um, so I, I had, I, I'd seen numerous interviews with you and, you know, uh, you seemed very reasonable and very rational. And then I was like, is this possible that this is the guy that's telling the truth? Is this possible that everyone that I know that had these strong opinions of you, that most of them at least were like me? They had formed these opinions through a glance at a headline, someone talking about you on a, on a, on a television show. And so uh, and then we run into each other in Aspen. <laughs> Just random. That was the weirdest moment because we were both staring at each other. Yeah. And then we almost did it like a full 360. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I noticed you walking. I'm like, I, that's, yeah, it is. So I said, hey, what's up? <laughs> so, um, so first of all, I wanted to ask you, if you could just please explain how you got into these controversial positions in the first place. Why, how did you adopt these, these opinions that people find so controversial? Because you started out as uh, an environmental guy, right? Yeah. yeah, and, I, and I'll say one thing about that book is that it... Um, it is depressing to read, and like my wife could not read it. She she was going to read it out of loyalty to me, and I just said you can't do that because it would have depressed her so much, you know. And I'm not, this is not a good advertisement for this book, but it's you know she there's so much about documentation of corruption and you know the sort of brutality towards children and. And I didn't want her reading that. Her life is about making people laugh, making people joyful, you know, which is which is its own contribution to kind of global health. You know, people who can make you laugh are doing you doing something for you that is going to probably extend your lifetime. You look at, you know, I look at Norman Lear, you know, who's like 96 years old or whatever, and he he's like looked look like 50, and Carl Reiner and all these people who. There's something about laughter that makes, you know, that is good for you. And um, and so, it, you know, I admire anybody who who took it on to read that whole book and, and made it through. I, uh, I was, you know, kind of one of the leading environmentalists in the country. I, I found it, I started, I went to work for commercial fishermen on the Hudson River in 1983 when I first got sober. And I... Um, I wanted to do something with my life that I, you know, that I felt drawn to, and I'd always been an outdoors person. I'd always been a fisherman, and outdoors with wildlife, kayaking, and all that stuff. And I went to work for a commercial fisherman on the Hudson River. Uh, we began suing polluters. They purchased a patrol boat and began patrolling the river, and we sued. I, while I was there, we sued over 500 polluters. We forced polluters to spend almost $5 billion on remediation of the Hudson. And today, you know, partially as a result of our work, the Hudson is now the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. It produces more biomass per gallon, more pounds of fish per acre than any other waterway in the Atlantic Ocean, north of the equator. The miraculous resurrection, and when I first started working on the Hudson, 
it caught fire. It was dead. It was dead water. Zero dissolved oxygen for 20 miles north of New York City, 20 miles south of Albany. No life in it. Wow. Um, it caught it fire. Caught, it was that polluted. It caught fire. It would turn colors every week, depending on what color they were painting the trucks at the GM plant in Terrytown. You know, it was really my father toured it in 1967, and it was just it was regarded as a national joke. Well, today it's an it's an international model for ecosystem protection and the miraculous resurrection it's the only waterway in the north atlantic that still has strong spawning stocks of all of its historical species of migratory fish of the anadromous fish like striped bass sturgeon herring alewives um blue crab etc um and the, uh, and the miraculous resurrection of Hudson inspired the creation of new river keepers. We copyrighted the name, and we started helping these other groups get started. And today is the biggest water protection group in the world. So we have 350 water keepers. Each one has a patrol boat. Each one patrols their local waterway, and they sue polluters. And we're in 46 countries. So in 2005. I was representing a bunch of uh, water keepers all over the United States and in the provinces of Canada, suing coal-burning power plants and cement kilns for discharging mercury. Two years before, in 2003, the uh, National Academy of Sciences and the FDA had published a report, like a five-year study, that showed that every freshwater fish in America at dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. The CDC simultaneously published a study that showed that one out of every six American women had levels high enough in her core blood in or that her child would have some kind of intellectual deficiency, like lost IQ, etc. And where's the mercury coming from? The mercury was largely coming from coal-burning power plants. It's in the geology and the coal, and it precipitates out, you know, when there's rain. If you, when you burn the coal, it's in the, you know, it's an element, so it doesn't degrade. And when the rain comes, it falls onto the landscapes, and it washes off the landscapes into the rivers. And the fish were all contaminated. We know that saltwater fish, like the big predatory species, have mercury, but the freshwater fish are just as bad. And it struck me then, that we were living in a science fiction nightmare when my children and the children of every other American could now no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth that I had grown up with, of your parents taking you to the local fishing hole and then coming home and safely eating the fish. You can't do that anymore in the United States of America or anywhere in North America. And so we started suing coal plants and cement kilns, which were the primary contributor of mercury and there were a lot of people suing coal plants back then but they were suing them for other reasons for ozone and particulates for acid rain for uh for carbon etc and we were focused the water keepers were mainly focused on mercury so i was also pushing legislation about mercury lobbying uh epa to to reduce it and i was giving lectures all over the place so these women start showing up at every lecture that I give, public lectures, and they would come and sit in the front seat, uh, occupy the front, they come early, occupy the front row, and then afterwards they'd stay late, and they would ask to talk to me. And um, 
they would say to me in a, in a very respectful, and by the way, these women were all very, all looked kind of similar. They were very pulled together. They were, you know, they were women in childbearing years. As it turns out, they were all the mothers of intellectually disabled children, and they believed that their children had been injured by the vaccines, by mercury in the vaccines. So, um, I, uh, so they would say to me in kind of a, a respectful but vaguely scolding way, if you're really interested in, uh, in mercury contamination to get exposure to children, you need to look at the vaccines. Now, this is something I didn't want to do because I, you know, I, first of all, I'm not a public health person. I wanted to do environmental stuff. Second of all, I've been involved since I was a little kid in the whole area of intellectual disabilities. My family was part of the DNA of my family. My aunt had been intellectually disabled. My aunt Rosemary, my aunt Eunice Schreiber, who was my godmother, founded Special Olympics in 1969. But she, she it was called before it was called Special Olympics. It was called Camp Schreiber. She lived 10 minutes from my house, and I would go over there every weekend to be a hugger and a coach in Special Olympics. And then when I was in uh, when I was in high school, because this was so much part of my family DNA, I spent 200 hours in what say a comfort retarded, um, you know, working, doing service. Uh, so, but it wasn't something I wanted to do with my life. Other people in my family were devoting their lives to that. My cousin Anthony Shriver, uh started Best Buddies and, and many other people. My family had written a lot of the legislation that protected people and gave rights to people with intellectual disabilities. My father had kicked down the door and, um, you know, uh, of the of the big of Willowbrook, which was the big hospital uh, in Staten Island. So my family was deeply involved, but it was not what I wanted to do with my life. But these women kept continually, I want to say harassing me, but they were following me. And it was different ones in every speech. And one of them got, and I was like, I, you know, I was, I looked, did enough research to show that the public health authorities were saying that they, these women were crazy, but they didn't look crazy to me. And they were rational. They weren't excitable. And they had done their research. And I was like, I should be listening to these people, even if they're wrong, somebody needs to listen to them. I mean, you know, and by the way, I had, you know, I'd worked on the Hudson River with a commercial fisherman and I'd seen so many times when the scientists were wrong and the commercial fishermen were right about what was happening in the Hudson River. Um, I, one time, I'll just give you an example. The, uh, this commercial fisherman came to me and said, all the goldfish are dying um, up in the Wallkill Creek. And, and I went up, they said, will you help us get to that? Because there's a new sewer plant up there that's discharging chlorine. It's hard to kill a goldfish. They're one of the most hardy species in the world. You can pour oil on a goldfish and it won't do anything. It won't hurt it. And um, I went up to, uh, to the Department of Environmental Conservation. They said there are no goldfish in the Hudson River. Well, these were people who I'd watched them catch goldfish in the Hudson. So anyway, that was just part, part of the background of my, you know, little bit of skepticism about government scientists, that they're not always right. But sometimes you have to listen to people and that human experience is valid. And that if a woman, tell, if a woman tells you something, 
about her child. You need, you should listen. And so uh, then one of these women came to my home and she found my home in Hyannisport at a little bungalow and her name was Sarah Bridges. She was a psychologist from Minnesota and she found my home. She came to it. She put, uh, she took out of the trunk of her car a pile of scientific studies that was 18 inches thick. She put it on my front porch, my stoop, and then she rang the bell, and then she pointed to that pile, and she said, I'm not leaving here till you read those. And her, as it turns out, her son, Porter Bridges, had been a perfectly healthy kid, got a battery of, of vaccines when he was two, and lost the ability to speak. He lost the ability to, um, he lost his toilet training. Um, he began headbanging and engaging in other stereotypical behavior like uh, stimming, uh, hand flapping, toe walking, and got an autism diagnosis. And the vaccine court had awarded her $20 million for acknowledging that the child had gotten autism from the vaccines. And she didn't want it to happen to other kids. And so I started, I sat down with this pile of studies. And I'm used to reading science. I'm very comfortable reading it. I wanted to be a scientist when I was a little kid. And my life, my legal career has been about science. It's, you know, virtually all the, the cases that I've been involved with, hundreds and hundreds of cases, almost all of them involve some scientific controversy. And so I'm comfortable with reading science and, and I know how to read it critically. I know how to look for the flaws in it and you know how to weigh the, the, the uh, attribute weight to various studies, etc. And I sat down while she was there and I read through the abstracts of these studies one after the other. And uh, but before I was six inches down in that pile, I recognized that there was this huge delta between what the public health agencies were saying were telling us about vaccine safety and what the actual peer-reviewed published science was saying. Then I took the next step, which is I started calling people, high-level public officials, and I had access to everyone. I called Francis Collins. I called Marie McCormick, who ran the Institute of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences. I called Kathleen Stratton at the National Academy of Sciences, who was the chief staffer, and I was asking her about these studies. And I realized during these conversations that none of these people had read any of the science. They were just repeating things that they had been told about the science. And then and they kept saying to me, well, I can't answer that detailed question. You need to talk to Paul Offit. Well, Paul Offit is a vaccine developer who made a $186 million deal with Merck on the rotavirus vaccine. And... It would be, it was odd to me that government regulators were saying, you should talk to somebody in the industry. It's like if I, you know, I used to talk to EPA people all the time, asking them, what, did, what does this provision mean in the permit? Why did you put it in there? And if they said to me, I don't know, why don't you go talk to the coal industry or is this lobbyist for the coal industry and he will tell you what we're doing. I would have been very, you know, puzzled and indignant. Oh, it was weird to me that the, the top regulators in the country were telling me, go talk to somebody who's an industry insider, because we don't understand the science. And when I talked to him, I caught him in a lie. And both of us knew that he was lying, and that, and that both of us recognized that, that he was lying. 
And at that point, I was what like... What was the lie? Well, I asked him this question. I said, why is it that CDC and, and every state uh, regulator recommends that, um, that pregnant women do not eat tuna fish to avoid the mercury, but that CDC is recommending mercury-containing flu shots with huge bolus doses of mercury, I mean massive doses, that pregnant women in every trimester of pregnancy. And he said to me, he said, um, well, Bobby, in this kind of patronizing way, and by the way, when I talked to Paul Offit, he started the conversation, he was very enthusiastic, and he said, you know, my, your father was my hero. The reason I got into public service and public health was because I was inspired by your father. So that kind of, you know, I'm susceptible, like anybody else, to kind of that kind of flattery. So I was inclined to like the guy. But then he said this, I asked him about how can you be, you know, telling people not to eat, women not to eat tuna fish, but giving them a flu shot that has, you know, these huge doses. And he said, well, Bobby, there are, there's two kinds of mercury. There's a good mercury and there's a bad mercury. And the minute he said, and I knew there's a different kind of mercury in the vaccines. It's ethyl mercury in the vaccines and methyl mercury in the fish. But I know a lot of, by then you can imagine, I know a lot about mercury. I've been suing people. When you sue somebody, on, you get a PhD in that. You know more than anybody in the world. You have to or you're not going to win your lawsuit. So I knew a lot about mercury and I knew that his argument was not with me, but it was with the periodic tables because there's no such thing as a good mercury. And I also knew the history of why he was saying that because, you know, mercury was added to vaccines in a form called thimerosal in 1932. And Eli Lilly, which was a manufacturer, was because people knew then that mercury was horrendously neurotoxic. Mercury is a thousand times more neurotoxic than lead. You would never get, shoot lead into your baby. Why was thimerosal introduced? Into it was allegedly introduced as a preservative, but it doesn't kill uh, it doesn't kill uh, streptococcus or any of the other contaminants you would be worried about. In fact, it kills brain cells at one thirty of the dose that it takes to kill streptococcus or staphylococcus. Staphylococcus. So. It wasn't a good preservative. Why, what NIH admitted to me in 2016, the real reason was there as an adjuvant. An adjuvant is a, a toxic material that they add to dead virus vaccines to amplify the, um, the immune response. So your body, when, when, I mean, this is kind of getting into the weeds, but a live virus vaccine, if they give it to you, it can spread the disease. It can mutate in you and spread the disease. That's why most of the polio today, 70% of the polio today is vaccine polio that came from the vaccines. Um, but so the regulators expressed a preference for dead virus vaccines. The dead virus vaccine, however, will not produce a durable or robust immune response enough to get a license. The way you get a license for a vaccine is showing that you get an antibody response for a certain amount of time, and that is a strong antibody response. But the dead virus vaccine won't produce that. In fact, just figured out that if you add something horrendously toxic to the vaccine, that your body confuses that toxic product. You add it with the dead antigen, which is the viral particle. 
the, your body confuses that toxin with the viral particle and gets frightened and mounts this huge, humongous immune response. The next time it sees that virus, the, the, the immune response is there. So they, at that point, vaccinologists went around searching around the world to find the most horrendously toxic materials to add to vaccines. And there's a mantra in vaccinology that the more toxic the, the adjuvant, the more robust the immune response. And so that's why toxicologists and vaccinologists don't get along with each other. Because the toxicologists would say to the vaccinologists, well, I understand it gave you your immune response, but then what is the fate of that in your body? Where is it going? Is it being excreted? Is it being lodged in the brain? Is it penetrating the blood-brain barrier? And the, the vaccinologists could not answer those questions and did not want to. So they basically moved the toxicologists out of these, you know, out of the vaccine, whole, the whole vaccine universe. Anyway, what, um, so when it was added in 1932, the industry said, Eli Lilly said, um, well, the reason, because everybody was saying, well, how can you put mercury into a child? Who would do that? And they said, well, it's a different kind of mercury. It's ethylmercury, and the ethylmercury is excreted very quickly, so it won't stay in your body. They had no science to say that, but that's what they were saying for years. And then, in 2003, a CDC scientist called Picciero did a study where he gave tuna sandwiches that were mercury, you know, contaminated to children, and they and then measured their blood and the mercury from the tuna sandwich was there a half-life 64 days later so it was still there 64 days and he injected the children with mercury from a vaccine and that mercury disappeared from their blood within a week and this kind of confirmed what eli Lilly had said in 1932 oh it disappears really quickly from the body and that was published, I, I believe, in the Lancer Pediatrics. But immediately, the journal began getting letters from people, including this famous scientist called Dr. Boyd Haley, who is the head of, he's the chair of that chemistry department of the University of Kentucky. And he said, "What? But what happened to the mercury? Because Pichiero couldn't find it in the children's urine, or in their feces, or in their hair, or sweat, or nails. So where is it?" And then and NIH actually then commissioned a study. And they, because they, at that point, they were really trying to figure out, you know, whether this was dangerous. And they commissioned a very famous scientist called Thomas Burbacker up at the University of Washington, Seattle, to do a study with monkeys, with macaques. And he did the same study Pichiero did, but he did something you can't do with children, which he then killed the monkeys. And then he looked for the mercury, and what he found was the mercury, yes, it left their blood immediately. The ethylmercury from the vaccines was gone from their blood in a week. The methylmercury from the tuna fish was there two a month later, two months later. <clears throat> but when he sacrificed the monkeys and did postmortems, he found that the mercury had not left their body. Instead, the reason it was disappearing from their blood is because ethylmercury crosses the blood-brain barrier much easier than methylmercury. The ethylmercury from the vaccine was going directly to the brains of these animals and it was lodging there and causing severe inflammation. And, um, and you know, we now know it's there 20 years later. 
So, um, what, you know, so, so when Burba went off and when I'm on the phone with Offit and I said, he said, the acid mercury is excreted quickly. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, because of the Pichiero study. Uh, because the study by, uh, by Pichiero found that it was excreted quick in a week. And I said, but you're familiar with the Burbacker study that showed in that it's gone to the brain. And there was dead silence on the phone. And then he said to me, he kind of hemmed it all and said, well, you're right. Uh, it's not that study. It's just a whole mosaic of studies. And I said, can you cite any for me? And he said, I'll send them to you. And he never did. That's the last I heard from him. So I, at that point, I knew there was something wrong. And then somebody handed me a transcript of a secret meeting um, that took place in 1999. And in, I think it was 1999. It might have been 2000. But it was called, it's called the Simpsonwood meeting. And what happened is, in the midnight, you know, I mean, the, the history is that in 1986, well, I'll go back a little further, in 1979 and 80, when I was a kid, I only had three vaccines. My kids got 72 vaccines. That's what you need now to get through school, 72 doses of 16 vaccines. So, and it started changing in the 80s and 90s, but in, in like 1979, they, uh, they brought out a, a vaccine called the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. And that vaccine was very dangerous, and it was killing one out of, killing or giving severe brain damage to one in 300 kids. And it was pulled in the United States. It was pulled in Europe, and it, but Bill Gates still gives it to 161 million African children every year. The same vaccine? The same vaccine, and to South Asian kids. And I'll tell you, you know, we now know what that does because the Danish government did a study uh, called Morganson in 2017 that showed that African kids, and that's, that's uh, published in a journal called eBioPharma, and it, it was done by the leading deities of, of, of African vaccinology, all of them pro-vaccine, people like Peter A.A.B., whose name is very famous, Sigrid Morganson, and a bunch of others. And they went to Africa and looked at that. They had 30 years of data. And Gates had gone to the uh, Danish government and said, you know, give us money because we've saved millions of lives with this vaccine in Africa. And the Danish government said, can you show us the data? He, and he couldn't. So they went to Guinea-Bissau, which is a, a country in the west of Africa. And Guinea-Bissau, the Danes for 30 years had been paying for these, these very advanced uh, health clinics, local health clinics all over Guinea-Bissau. And the, the clinics were, were weighing every child at three months and every child and at six months. And in the, in the 80s, they began, or 90s, they began, um, or the 80s, they began giving the DTP vaccine at the first visit, a three-month visit. But if they didn't hit the child exactly, if they didn't have full 90 days, uh, you know, of age, if they were 89 days, they wouldn't give it to them the six-month visit. As it turns out, they had 30 years of data where half the kids were vaccinated and half the kids were not between two months and five months of age. So it was a perfect natural experiment. And they went in there and they looked at it. They looked at 30 years of data and they found the girls who got that vaccine, the DTV vaccine, had, um, 
had uh, ten times, over ten times more likely to die over the next three months than girls, than children who did not. And they, they weren't dying of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. They were protected against those by the vaccine. They were dying of anemia and bilharzia and malaria and pulmonary disease, but mainly they were dying of pneumonia. And what the researchers said is that the vaccine is almost certainly killing more children than diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis prior to the vaccine because it was protecting them against the target illnesses, but it had ruined their immune systems. So they could not defend themselves against these other minor infections. And nobody noticed for 30 years that it was the vaccinated children who were disproportionately dying. And that's the problem with not doing, you know, real placebo-controlled trials. None of the vaccines are ever subjected to true placebo-controlled trials. It's the only medical product that is exempt from that prior to licensure. Anyway, what happened in the DDP vaccine, when it was pulled in this country, it was pulled because so many people were suing the drug companies. Wyeth, which is now Pfizer, was the primary manufacturer. They went to the Reagan administration in 1986, and they said, um, you, you need to give us full immunity from liability for all vaccines or we're going to get out of the business. And Reagan actually said to them, why, why don't, they said, we're losing $20 in downstream liability for every dollar we're making in profits. And Reagan said to them, well, why don't you make the vaccine safe? And they said, because vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. That's the phrase they use, and that phrase is in the statute. And it's also in the Brusewitz case, which is the Supreme Court decision upholding that statute. And so anybody who tells you vaccines are safe and effective, the industry itself got immunity from liability by convincing the president and Congress that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. Now, the argument against that would obviously be they've prevented disease that would have killed untold numbers of children. Right, that would be the argument they would use against that. Exactly, and that and that vaccine injuries are very rare. That is the argument that is used against them. And both of those arguments in CDC's own studies have been severely challenged. So the CDC did a study in 2010 called Lazarus, and it was Harvard scientists um, who looked at one of the HMOs, the Harvard Pilgrim HMO, which is one of the top HMOs. Um, it's actually, I think, the ninth biggest HMO. But and they were testing a machine counting system that could do a cluster analysis because right now the the only way the only vaccine injury surveillance system they have it doesn't work it's one one fewer than one in a hundred vaccine injuries are ever reported because it's voluntary and this is what you can you can find support for this in the lazarus study lazarus actually looked and said how many injuries are actually happening? How many are reported? And they said fewer than uh, fewer than one in a hundred are ever reported. And they developed a system of machine counting, so that it doesn't rely on voluntary reporting. What you do is you look at all the vaccine records for a population and all of the medical claims, the subsequent medical claims, and you do machine counting. You do a cluster analysis, and you it's very very accurate. And they found, CDC at that time was saying one out of a million people were being injured by the vaccine. They found one in 37. 
And so, and, and CDC had asked this team to design a machine counting system because their, their system was so heavily criticized by everybody. David Kessler, who was the Surgeon General, everybody was saying, it's terrible, it doesn't work. And Congress had told them, you have to accurately count vaccine injuries, and they weren't doing it. So when they did it, when they actually looked, they found that it's not one in a million, it's one in 37 kids had, you know, had potential vaccine claims. Now, you can't tell whether any of those claims were actually from the vaccine because it's a machine counting, so it's statistical. But you can say that the number of injuries is much higher than anybody was admitting. Um, and then in uh, the year 2000, CDC did a study with Johns Hopkins called Geyer because there, there was this emerging claim that vaccines had saved tens of millions of lives around the world. And I'm not going to tell you that they don't because nobody should trust my word on this. You know, my, what I say is irrelevant. What, what is relevant is the science. And this is the, the principal effort by CDC to actually verify that claim. And what the Geyer study, and they looked at all the, um, you know, the history of each vaccine and health claims. And what they were trying to say is there, there was this huge decline in uh, infection, in, uh, mortalities from infectious disease that took place in the 20th century. An 80% drop in deaths from infectious disease. And what caused that? Was it vaccines? And what they said is no, it, was, it had very little, almost nothing to do with vaccines. The real drop happened because of um, really engineering solutions. Um, uh, refrigerators, you could store food transportation systems that would get oranges up from Florida, et cetera, the roads, um, better housing, sanitation, the invention of chlorine, sewage treatment, but mainly nutrition. Nutrition is absolutely critical to building immune systems. And so um, what was really killing the, these children was malnutrition. And, you know, it was the this infectious disease that was kind of knocking them off at the end. But the real cause of death was malnutrition and a collapsed immune system. And that is what the Geyer study says. Now, you, anybody who's listening to this, you know, you can go look at this study. So don't blame me and don't say, you know, Kennedy's in denial. This is the only time CDC ever looked at this. And it's called G-U-Y-E-R. It's published, as I recall, in pediatrics. And it's, and it's uh, CDC and, NIA and um, uh, Johns Hopkins in the year 2000 and um i believe the study is true and that it, it and it's borne out by many many others there's another study from 1977 called uh, mcginley and mcginley and it was uh, uh and that study also said that fewer than one percent of the decline in uh, infectious mortality deaths could be attributed to vaccines Oh, and that, that study was required reading in almost every medical school in this country until the mid-1980s. So anyway, that, I'm just saying that that orthodoxy that you just described, um, it's, it's not an orthodoxy that should be accepted on faith. People should actually look at it, and when they have, it has not borne up. I just finished this story, and I'll try to be brief. Um, in, because, what, because Reagan 
caved in, and it wasn't just Reagan, it was the Democrats. My uncle was uh, chairing the health committee at that time, and the Democrats also went along. They passed the Vaccine Act in 1986, and the Vaccine Act gave immunity from liability to all vaccine companies if you, for any injury, for negligence. No matter how negligent you are, no matter how reckless your conduct, no matter how toxic the ingredient, how shoddily tested or manufactured the product, no matter how grievous your injury, you, your vaccine company, you cannot be sued. So this was a huge gift for this industry because the, the biggest cost for every medical product is downstream liabilities. And all of a sudden, those have disappeared. So you're not only taking away that cost, but you're also and incentivizing the production of many new vaccines. You're also disincentivizing. You're removing the incentive to, to make them safe because no matter how dangerous they are, they don't care because they, they can't be sued. And then, but you may say, well, if they're really dangerous, then uh, nobody's going to buy them. But the problem with that is nobody has a choice. So they not only got rid of the, the downstream liability, but they don't have any advertising or marketing costs because the federal government is ordering 76 million people, essentially ordering 76 million kids to take the product a year. If you can get that on the schedule, it's like printing a billion dollars for you. And so there was a gold rush. And then the other thing is they are exempt from pre-licensing safety testing. They don't have to be tested. And they're not. And I said this for many, many years. You know, I said not one of these 72 vaccines has ever been tested. Pre-licensing in a placebo-controlled trial where you're looking at vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids and looking for at health outcomes. Never been done. And um, Tony Fauci was saying he's lying. He's not telling the truth. This is vaccine misinformation. In 2016, Donald Trump asked me to serve on a vaccine safety commission, and I agreed to do it. And I and he then ordered Fauci and Collins to meet with me, and you know Peter Marks at FDA and all that. So I had meetings with all these guys. And I actually went into that meeting with Fauci with uh, uh, with three people. One was Dell Bigtree, another one was Aaron Siri, the attorney, and. Another one was Lynn Redwood, who's a, you know, a very, very famous nurse practitioner, public health um, official in Georgia. And during that meeting, there was a referee there from the White House, from the West Wing. And I said to Fauci, I gave kind of a lecture showing what we knew. And I said to him in the middle of it, I had a PowerPoint. I said, Tony, you have said any, by the way, uh, you know, he's known my family forever, and, you know, my uncle was chair of the health committee, writing his salary every year, everything else like that. So, and, you know, and very cooperative relationship with him. The, the, the two of the centers that are NIH are named for members of my family, for Unish Shriver and my aunt, my grandmother. So, you know, I said to him, Tony, you've said, been telling people I'm a liar. When I say no vaccine has ever been, none of the mandated vaccines, what they call recommended, they're actually mandated in many of the states. I said none of them have ever been tested against uh, in a placebo-controlled trial in a safety test prior to, to licensure. And I said, can you show me one vaccine that has been subject to a safety test? Show me one study that shows that. And he made it this show of looking through a red well 
they had brought in from NIH this big tray full of file folders. And he made a, a show of kind of looking through that at the time, but he couldn't find whatever he was looking for. So then he said, it's back at NIH in Bethesda, and I'll send it to you. Well, he never did. So Aaron and I sued him, sued HHS, and, and said, show us one study that's ever been done on you know, pre-licensing safety testing for vaccines. And after a year of stonewalling, they finally gave us a letter and said, we don't have any. So they, don't, they literally don't have any. So nobody knows what the risk profile for these products are. So they're telling people they, they, uh, they avert more harms than they saw and then they cause. But there's no science behind that statement. It's just a, you know, it's just a guesswork. But it's and, an amazingly effective narrative. And that narrative, the way it's spread through this country, like I said, yes. it has gotten me, and I think it gets a lot of people. And that people are terrified of being called an anti-vaxxer. It's a, it's a very dismissive pejorative. It's a very bad term. And if someone calls you, like, always oh, one of those. Yeah. And it's, it's a kind of amazing what they've done, especially in a world where we're very aware of the, the side effects that were hidden from the public with other drugs, whether it's opiates or whether it's Vioxx, or we're very aware that deception has taken place. But for this one, for whatever reason, that one, I, I think maybe it has to do with protecting children because good parents who don't, you know, they, they want to trust science and they want to think that medical science is the reason why people live so well today, and a lot of that's true but they want to think that it's all connected and that they don't know what they're doing. So if they say you're supposed to get 72 shots, you should get 72 shots because they, they really know. Yeah. And everybody. And, and you think your doctor did the research, but he yeah. didn't. And you're absolutely right about the opioids. I mean, that, there's many, many other um, examples, but the opioids is a good one because if anybody goes and looks at that, that, uh, that Netflix documentary, Dope Sick, yeah. that documentary... Cooler, right? What? Is it Hulu? Is it Hulu? Is that Hulu? So that Whatever documentary shows how this, you know, the, all of these subtle uh, forces that lead to agency capture and the, and the, um, and the, uh, this collusion, this corrupt collusion between the industry and the regulator, because it was the regulator who agreed to put on the label, it was FDA, who agreed to put on the label is safe and effective and it's not addictive you know about oxycodone which is crazy and, and right and everybody knew it was addictive you had the entire medical community who said oh we must have been wrong because fda says it's safe and effective oh you can imagine if they did that for vaccines and then you saw what they did in covid you know and and they had to continually change the goalposts it prevents transmission if you get it uh, grandma won't get sick and you know um and each time it won't you'll never get sick you know you only have to take one it's, it's really effective and then now it's two and that's it and now it's three and now it's four and um you know and that uh and each time they had to move the goalposts and everybody just would go along with the next claim without ever saying, but wait a minute, you know, why should we trust you now? Because you were, uh, you know, you were saying with such, and by the way, the defense is, well, they were, <clears throat> were in the middle of pandemic and they had to act quickly. 
but um, and you know they had to sort of do some guesswork, but they were saying it with such assurance, and they were punishing uh, doctors of conscience who began questioning them. They were ruining their careers. They were destroying their reputations. They were taking away their livelihoods of scientists and doctors. People who were getting injured, they were, um, you know, they were marginalizing, vilifying, gaslighting them, and urging others to do the same. You know, getting on TV and saying, if you didn't do this, you're a bad person, and you shouldn't be treated when you go to a hospital. You know, and all of these things, which is not, it, something was, went, you know, something was really wrong. But it's, it seems to be the same pattern over and over again. It's just bizarre that it takes so long to get the narrative out to people that when you get a corporation, any corporation, just any group of people that can make money unchecked, it seems to be a, a normal human characteristic that they do that. When they're unregulated or unchecked or when someone's not watching them or when the people that are watching them are compromised. And then if you're literally funding media, so you're funding all these shows by, and they have to essentially self-censor and you're seeing it, I'm sure you're aware of the YouTube videos of yourself that have been pulled now. You know, um, the hot boxing with Mike Tyson got pulled, uh, Theo Vaughn's podcast Theo got, got pulled. Theo called me, you know, really worried and apologetic for saying, so I was going to go on his show again, and he said, I'm worried about having you on my show, and this is just two weeks ago. And what was, well, he's probably worried about getting another strike from YouTube. Yeah. So what was the subject that you guys discussed that was uh, such a problem? Uh, you know, I don't even know. He just, he, he said, and then somebody did an article on it, on what happened to him. Um, yeah, it was, I think it's a place called Free Press. At an article, but it was an old, you know, it was an old, it was weird because it was a, it was a uh, discussion. I've been on his show a bunch of times, but it was something that we did during the pandemic and they let it stand. Yeah, it was, then, a, it was uh, up for quite a while. It was up for a long time and he, he called me like two or three weeks ago and, said, and he was like shaken. And because I, he, he has said to me, why don't you come on again? And, you know, I, I love him and I, his podcast is really fun and it's really close to my house. And I get a really good response from it. He is kind of a very interesting audience. I think he's got a big overlap with you, but, um, you know, he, it's, it's really, he's such a pleasant guy. And yeah, I love him. Yeah. He's yeah. out here now. Yeah. So he, uh, he, uh, so I, I was looking forward to going on his podcast, but he called me and was like, I don't think we can do it because I, you know, I'm worried about my livelihood. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's where the self-censoring kicks in. Yeah. And so they, did they give him any indication of what the subject was? I don't know. He was trying to find out from them. And I don't think they were the, being that forthcoming. What did you guys discuss? Did you discuss COVID? We had a big, we had a long discussion. We did one that was almost entirely on falconry. One uh, falconry. Yeah. <laughs> we did one. Well, you know, when I went on Mike Tyson, I spent a lot of it talking about pigeons because I used to raise homing pigeons when I, and that's really why I wanted to go on his show because I knew he was a pigeon fan, a pigeon guy. Wow. And, uh, and then. Uh, 
Yeah, Theo started. Theo found out that I, you know, train hawks, and he um, he was interested in that. He's like a hunter, and you know, Tennessee, and uh, and so we ended up talking a lot about that. I don't remember if we talked about vaccines, but we must have at some point. Yeah. We must have. But that uh, that kind of self censoring is uh, it seems to have ramped up, and they when I like I said they deleted the Mike Tyson episode, they deleted the the Theo Vaughn episode. I'm not aware of any other ones. Are you aware of any other ones that got taken down as well? Well, I mean anything I put up goes comes down, but yeah, yeah. I mean we're you know I'm I'm uh, I'm heavily censored. Let, let me can I just finish. The, yeah. kind of the vaccine saga and because you let me talk so long already and I, don't, I really don't want to talk about this stuff talk about other stuff but, it, but okay. I'll just finish this what happened in the in around 1999 the, the, the vaccine schedule immediately after they passed the vaccine act exploded because all these companies were rushing to get new vaccines onto the schedule many of them for diseases that weren't even casually contagious, like ridiculous diseases that are on that, like hepatitis B. Why would you give, you get hepatitis B from, you know, from sharing needles or from like going to a really seasoned prostitute or from, uh, from, um, you know, sort of compulsive uh, uh, homosexual behavior. Oh, you, but a baby, but they, a baby can get it if they get it from their mom. But every mom is tested. So, you know, at the hospital, every mom, every pregnant woman is tested for it. So the baby doesn't need this. Is there a treatment for it when they do get it? Yeah. But but the thing is, why would you give it to a one-day-old baby, you know, or a three-hour-old baby, and then four more times when that baby's not going to be even subject to it for 16 years? And it may not even... I mean, originally what happened is Merck... And CDC designed this for pro prostitutes and for male homosexuals, promiscuous male homosexuals, and they couldn't sell any because those cohorts had other better things to do with their money, and they didn't, you know, they weren't going to buy the vaccine. So CDC went, or Merck went back to CDC and said, "We built all these plants, and we got the thing, and got it approved, and we were, you know, a billion dollars in. What are you going to do?" And CDC said, "We'll just recommend it for children." And that way they keep the what they call the warm production uh, lines. You know, they keep they keep the vaccine. Uh, they they like to have a lot of vaccines in case there's emergency. They have a lot of lines out there that they can you know manufacture a pandemic response on. This is what they say. So anyway, all of these new crazy diseases, rotavirus, and you know we're all put on the schedule, and um. And they, uh, and then they started seeing all of this explosion in chronic disease, and particularly autism. So around 1995, CDC, uh, Congress said to EPA, what year did the autism epidemic begin? And EPA is a captured agency, but it's captured by the coal industry and the oil and the pesticide industry, but not by the pharma, because it doesn't regulate pharma. So it actually did a real science, and it said, 1989 is the year the epidemic began. It's a red line. And 1989 was the year the vaccine schedule exploded. That doesn't mean that's a correlation. It does not mean causation. But it is something that should be looked at. So, and NIH decided to look at it because women were saying it was the vaccine. 
again and again and again and again and again and again and again, women were coming with the same story. I, I had a, a perfectly healthy two-year-old, exceeded all my his milestones. I gave them on their second birthday or 18th month wellness visit the full battery of six or eight vaccines and the and that child spikes a fever that night uh, has a seizure and over the next three months loses their language loses their capacity to make eye contact to finger point uh, social interactions and languages disappear and it happened so many times that nih was saying we got to look to see if it's the vaccine and cdc was so cdc hired a um a, a belgian epidemiologist named Thomas Verstraten, and they opened up the vaccine safety data link, which is the biggest database for vaccines for HMOs. All the, the top 10 HMOs have all their records in there, so they have all your vaccination records and all your health claims, so you can do these kind of cluster analyses. And Verstraten went in there and he looked at one thing. He looked at children who got the hepatitis B vaccine within their first month of life. And, and compared those health outcomes in children who did not. In other words, children who got it after 30 days or didn't get it at all. That was the second cohort. And what he found in his first run through the data is there was an 1135% greater or elevated risk for an autism diagnosis among the kids who'd gotten it in their first 30 days. At that point, they knew what caused the autism epidemic. Because a relative risk, they, it, it's, a, it's called a relative risk of 11.35. A relative risk of 2 is considered proof of causation, as long as there's biological plausibility. A relative, um, the, the relative risk of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years and getting lung cancer is 10. This was 11.35. So there was a panic throughout the industry this you know as people heard about this study cdc wanted to do a meeting with all of the big panjerums of the industry but they didn't want to do it on cdc campus because then they thought it would be subject to a freedom of information law request they wanted to do it keep it secret so they they found this retreat center a methodist retreat center in norcross georgia called simpsonwood and they assembled i think there was 72 people there and they were from the who cdc nih fda um and all the vaccine companies and all the big academics the people who basically develop vaccines in the academic institutions and they were all there and they spend the first day, they, they give them all a copy of first round study, but they have to give it all back because they don't want it out there. And then they have a day of talking about it where they're all saying, holy cow, this is real. And, you know, the, the lawyers are going to come after us. This, we're all in trouble. And then they spend the second day talking about how to hide it. And um, how do you know this? Because somebody made a recording of it. And I got a hold of the transcripts, and I published excerpts from those transcripts in Rolling Stone, and anybody can go and read these now on our website. It's called Simpsonwood, and you can read through the whole thing, or you can read my Rolling Stone article, uh, which is also on the website, which summarizes it. And uh, uh, but anyway, and check you know if that if that if you think it's true or not. Uh, but they so then I when I read that. When I read that, then I was like, okay, I, I got to like drop everything and do something about this. And I published this article 
in Rolling Stone, and I, you know, and I was kind of shocked by the just the power of the reaction against it of people, you know, coming out of Rolling Stone and Salon, which also published it, uh, were just bulldozed with, you know, these hate reactions, and then and Salon six years later, six years they like they so then I when I read that when I read that then I was like okay. I, I got to like drop everything and do something about this. And I published this article in Rolling Stone and I, you know, and I was kind of shocked by the, just the power of the reaction against it. Of people, you know, coming out of Rolling Stone and Salon, which also published it, uh, were just bulldozed with, you know, these hate reactions. And then, and Salon, six years later, six years later, they, by, by the way, um, there were four corrections, I think four or five corrections in the article in the next week, right? All of those corrections were made by the, the editors of Salon and Rolling Stone. And I, they've sent me letters, which are also on our website, saying this. None by me. Um, but from then on, they said, oh, Kennedy, it was loaded with mistakes. And six years later, Salon, under pressure from the pharmaceutical industry, takes it down. And says we found mistakes in it, but they never showed any mistakes. They would have never, I've said repeatedly to them, show me one mistake in that published piece. Show me one. And they have not been able to do it. And then they also forget that the four mistakes that they, that, you know, were found that, you know, that, uh, that we printed errata for, that Rolling Stone printed errata for, um, were all made by them. And that, because they edited my 16,000 word piece down to a 3,000 word piece. And when they were doing that, they made some errors. Um, so then, uh, so then, um, you. But what what happened after that is you had this explosion in chronic disease. So that so, and this is something everybody. This is a, this is the punchline, and this is what everybody needs to focus on. In 1960s, when I was a kid. 6% of Americans had chronic disease. What do I mean by chronic disease? Basically three categories plus obesity. One, neurological disorders, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism. Autism went from one in 10,000 in my generation, it's still one in 10,000 in my generation. I, uh, how old are you? 55. 55. I bet that you've never met anybody with full-blown autism your age. You know, head-banging, football or helmet on, non-toilet train, non-verbal. I mean, in my, I've never met anybody like that my age, but in my kid's age, now one in every 34 kids has, has autism, and half of those are full-blown, meaning that description. Now, what's the conventional explanation for that? Well, I mean, there, there's no real explanation. You know, well, how they, do they try to? They explain. they try to say, well, we're just noticing it more, which is ridiculous because, first of all, there's all kinds of studies that say that the you know really good studies like. Uh, Hertz Machado is a very famous scientist, epidemiologist, biostatistician who was commissioned by the California State Legislature to answer that question. She's at the UC, uh, at, at the Mind Institute at UC Davis, and she came back and said, no, the, the epidemic is real. It's not, you know, better diagnostic or changing diagnostic criteria. And so, and that, you know, 
any real scientist now, even the big backers like Paul Off, it won't. I don't think even he will say that. But nobody from CDC is actually going to stand up and say that. They certainly won't debate the point. But even more so, if if it's one, if if it's not an epidemic, then where are all where are the one in 34, 69 year old men? who are wearing helmets and non-toilet trained. And, you know, if you got autism, you live for, forever. It doesn't affect lifespan. You're gonna, these kids are gonna be around forever. And they, and, but there's nobody my age who looks like that. So if it was, if it was really better recognition, you'd see it in every age group, not just in children. Not only that, but it changes every year. It gets worse and worse every year. So they can't keep saying, oh, we're just noticing it for the first time. And also, you know, how does it get worse every year? What? How does it get worse every year? Because, you know, the, the, the CDC releases new data. It's called the, I think it's the ADM. It's a, it's a monitoring system. And there's been all kinds of scandals with that because the CDC tries to manipulate the data. And there's all kinds of whistleblowers from the different states who say that they're pressured to not report cases and that kind of thing. So... But the CDC releases new data every year, and every year it gets worse. It's, it goes from, you know, it's now, I think, one in 22 boys. Has the rate of uh, by, vaccinations changed? Has the schedule yeah, the, changed? the rates of vaccinations have gone up. And, they, you know, the, the mercury has been removed from a lot of the vaccines. But it, there's aluminum in those vaccines, which, you know, operates along the same uh, biological pathways and does the same kind of damage. It's extremely neurotoxic. And then there's other things, lots of other toxics in the vaccines that, you know, could be responsible. I mean, there's lots, there's hundreds and hundreds of scientific studies that looks at it, but nobody ever reports them. Well, I did a book in which I, I, I have uh, 450 studies that are digested in that book you know, that I summarize and cite and 1,400 references. And everybody will say, oh, there's no study that shows autism and, and vaccines are connected. That's just crazy. You know, it's, that's people who are not looking at science. So anyway, but, but they want to say that they want to say that it's well, like it, it, it's, it's just it's, part of the religion. Yes, right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it really does seem like a, like and, a religion. And the heretics have to be burned at the stake. Yes. They have to be humiliated, yes. silenced, destroyed. Oh, it, it is. It you know, trust in the trust the experts is not a function of science. That's yes. the opposite of science. Tr tr trusting the experts is a function of religion it's not and and totalitarianism well, especially it's not a function of science or democracy you know in democracies you question people in authority and 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 maintain a posture of skepticism toward them the same is true in science you don't trust the experts right but but it wasn't all the experts either that was part of the problem the experts oh, no, that did including I, robert malone these guys are maligned in uh, such an obvious and slandered in such a like a blatant way. Yeah. Well, you know, when I um, when I when they first started saying trust the experts, I would say, where do they get that from? I've been litigating for forty years. Every case I have, there's experts on both sides. So when we right. when we brought the Monsanto case, they had experts from Yale, Stanford, and Harvard, and we had experts from Yale on our side, Stanford and Harvard. And they both said completely different things from each other. 
and they were totally credible. So that's why, you know, and the jury decided that our experts were right and their experts were wrong. Uh, the idea you can trust the experts, experts get biased too. You know, you pay expert enough money and a lot of them will say whatever you want them to say. And, I, and the people who were saying this at the top had a lot of, of money and power at stake. So anyway, so I'm almost finished. The autoimmune disease, the second category is autoimmune diseases. And all those neurological diseases explode in 1989, as I say, autism just exponentially exposed. Um, and if you're my age and you're listening to this, you know, and I know you've got a younger demographic, but you will remember that you didn't know anybody who looked like this when you were, you know, in school. We didn't know kids who had diabetes. We didn't know kids who had, or had EpiPads. The autoimmune diseases like diabetes, juvenile diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Crohn's disease, all this stuff suddenly appeared. I didn't know any of these diseases when I was a kid. But they and existed when you were a kid. That was, some of them did, some of them, but you know, they were so rare. I mean, even like the allergic disease, I didn't know anybody who had a peanut allergy. I had 11 siblings, like 71st cousins, and you know, I never, I, and a lot, a lot of friends, I never knew anybody with a peanut allergy. Why do five of my seven kids have allergies? You know, it's, it's and of course, we know why, because aluminum, uh, adjuvants give you allergies. They're designed to make you, you know, to, to create a hyperimmune response to, to, you know, to foreign particles. And the last category is, yeah, the allergic diseases, uh, peanut allergies, food allergies, um, eczema, which I never knew anybody with eczema when I was a kid. I never, uh, asthma, I knew people with asthma, but it wasn't one in every four black kids like it is today. So, you know, all of those things. Now we went from 6% uh, of American having chronic disease. By 1986, we're starting to add the vaccines and we get, um, and 11.8% of kids now. So it's doubled. By 2006, 54%. These are kids who are permanently disabled and they're, uh, they have to be on medication their whole lives. So we have the sickest generation in history. There's no other country in the world that has this kind of chronic disease epidemic. We have the biggest chronic disease. And of course, this is one of the reasons we have the highest death rate during COVID, because we have the highest chronic disease burden in the world. And, you know, listen, it's not just the vaccines. And I never have said that. It, it, our children are swimming around in a toxic soup. What we can say is most of it started in 1989, and there are only a certain, there's a finite number of culprits that you can point to and say, this talk, it has to come from a toxic exposure, because genes don't cause epidemics. You, they can provide a vulnerability, but you need a toxic exposure. What is it? Is it, you know, it could be glyphosate, it could be neonicotinoid pesticides. It could be PFOAs, which are the flame retardants that became ubiquitous, you know, around that same timeline. It could be cell phones, you know, it could be, uh, you know, Wi-Fi uh, um, uh, radiation. So there's a that's certain... unlikely. What? Isn't that very unlikely, It though? could be ultrasound. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I, you know, I think the, the Wi-Fi radi uh, radiation is a lot worse than people think it is, but, you know, I don't think... How so? Well, Wi-Fi radiation is, uh, 
does all kinds of bad things, including causing cancer. Wi-Fi radiation causes yeah, cancer. Yeah, from your cell phone. I mean, there's cell phone tuner, tumors. You know, that. I mean, I'm representing hundreds of people who have cell phone tumors behind the ear. It's always on the ear that you favor with your cell phone. Oh, um, and you know, we have the science. So if anybody lets us in front of a jury, they, it will be over. You know, we, so what is the, what is the number? Because a lot of people use there's so a lot of people with it. They're glioblastomas. That's the kind of cancers that they get. But cancer's not the worst thing. They also, you know, it opens up. Wi-Fi radiation opens up your blood-brain barrier, and so all these toxins that are in your body can now go into your brain. How does Wi-Fi radiation open up your blood-brain barrier? Yeah, now you're going beyond my uh, my okay. expertise. I, I, but what? There are, there are, I'm going to use a number here and you're going to think it's hyperbole, but, but it's not. There are tens of thousands of studies that show the horrendous danger of Wi-Fi radiation. And, so and, this is Wi-Fi that's in this room? Yeah, it's, there, it's, what, it's Wi-Fi like, routers. You should not be asleep and you should not let your kids carry their cell phones on their breasts, particularly a woman, because they're associated with breast, you know, they shouldn't be holding them in the breast pocket. If you have to call it, put them in your, you know, butt pocket, you should not be uh, having them near, near your head when you're sleeping. You know, you need to get away and you should never put one next to your head. You should always, I, like, I will never put this next to my head. I put it on a, I, you know, I put it on speakerphone or use earphones, uh, but you know, I won the case in front of on this issue of uh, suing FCC and FDA about it and um and you know and the court sided with me so now they're going to have to go back to the drawing board and do it but the Russians you get Russians know more about Wi-Fi radiation than anybody they, they developed it as a weapon and a lot of the really good science came out of Russia and uh you know the Russians won't let kids use cell phones in kindergarten or you know in, in grade school a lot of the schools in Russia don't let cell phones in there because of the danger and the levels of radiation that they allow from cell phones is like one one hundredth of what and I don't know exactly what it is, you know, so that's a number people shouldn't hold me to, but it's, it's, it, it is a tiny fraction of what we allow in this country. So the, the Wi-Fi radiation is obviously different than cell phone radiation. So you're talking about people that are just in a room with Wi-Fi are being exposed to something? Yeah, dangerous? people, and you know, people have different sensitivities to it. Oh, some people are extremely sensitive. They become completely debilitated from it. And um, really, know, oh yeah, we have a Wi-Fi. Yeah, we have a woman who uh, who was a um, who developed an, an allergy to Wi-Fi. She was in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, and she was in their cyber warfare unit. Oh, she was in a room with it all the time, and suddenly she developed a. a and she's a brilliant lawyer. Um, and she's one of the leaders of, you know, uh, in this movement to get, to make sure that they don't put Wi-Fi antennas on elementary schools, which they're doing now. There's no control over where people put these antennas. And, um, and, uh, So what do you think Wi-Fi is doing to us since it's everywhere and since everyone's experiencing, including you? What do you think it's doing it, to us? I think it degrades your mitochondria. It, uh, and it, you know, opens your blood-brain barrier. Do you, do you see anything online of how it could open up your blood-brain barrier? I, I don't know about how, but I... That it does? Found, I mean, 
I don't. I found an article. I was trying to find the validity of it, but it has a statement on here. Damage to the blood-brain barrier. Radiofrequency radiation exposure has been shown to affect the permeability of the blood-brain barrier as well as altering the expression of microRNA within the brain, which researchers state could lead to adverse effects such as neurodegenerative disease. Whoa. How come we don't know that? There's a doctor that did a study and said that it's been expanded on researchers in China, and there's a published article here, but I was looking around at the page and... They call it leaky brain. The findings were followed by suppression, misinformation, and a shutdown of government-funded yeah. research in the United yeah. States. It's the same. It's the same play. Oh, we got to get rid of Wi-Fi. Mm. What the fuck, Jamie? I... Yeah. Oh, my God. That's anyway, terrifying. so, but I'm not... I don't know. You know, I can't tell you where... The chronic disease epidemic, I think it's probably cumulative. You There's know, a lot going on. There's a so lot it's not just going on. Our kids are swimming around in a toxic soup. But, you know, we're now up to more than 54% of kids now have chronic disease. And, and you, know, I, you know, I mean, one of the things, the reason I want to be president is to end that. Of NIH actually doing studies like this rather than suppressing them. And let's figure out what it is, why kids have chronic disease and end it. It's costing us... I mean, we had, during COVID, we had, we have 4.2% of the global population. We had 16% of the COVID deaths. And that's probably a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons has got to be the, the burden that we have of chronic disease in our country. And we spend $4.3 trillion on healthcare every year in this country. 80% of that goes to chronic disease. Oh, it's, you know, it's bankrupting us. I wanted to talk to you about glyphosate because you brought it up. And um, one of the things I noticed when there, there was a test that came out or a study that came out recently that showed that an enormous percentage of Americans, it was somewhere in the 90% range, uh, when they were tested, had glyphosate in their blood. And then I saw a bunch of apologists online that were saying that these numbers that they're used to detect are so minuscule. And then someone I talked to said, yes, but that is the average so you're going to get some people that are exposed to tremendous amounts and that, that it could be toxic levels then some people who are exposed to very very little this is the average but there's no data on is there data on long-term even low dose glyphosate in your system because there, there's glyphosate know, we should we should just tell people is yeah glyphosate is the is the active ingredient of roundup and roundup um, was used. I mean, when we sued Monsanto, there's a it, there's a, uh, there's many many diseases that are linked to glyphosate exposure, uh, including um, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver cancers are very very closely linked. Um, a lot of kidney diseases, and then severe damage to the microbiome um, because. It's designed to kill plants, um, uh, and it and, and there are there are structures in your um, in your gut biome that are critical structures in your gut biome, which have plant-like metabolisms which are destroyed by glyphosate. And so, you know what what happened is um, glyphosate and Glyphosate was a, it was originally developed as a, as a 
uh, tank scalant. So to, to scale the calcium and other deposits, metal deposits, rust deposits from the inside of, you know, underground tanks. And in 1973, uh, Monsanto had to stop producing DDT because, you know, we passed the laws at that time and it, that was its flagship product. It needed another product. And I figured out that um, glyphosate, somebody at some point apparently threw some glyphosate on the, you know, out in the back in the yard and everything like green died where they touched it, where it touched glyphosate. And so somebody said, oh, this will be a good herbicide because it kills all plants. So originally Monsanto developed it as a, as a, uh, as a herbicide, but the way that it was applied initially from 1973 to 1993 was in backpack sprayers. So guys would walk down the corn feed at corn rows early in the season when the corn was competing with nearby weeds or sunlight and they would shoot the individual weeds. And then in 93, somebody figured out a way that, that glyphosate, that there were certain bacteria that glyphosate would not kill. And they said, we could take a gene out of that bacteria and put it into a corn seed and develop a corn that cannot be killed by glyphosate. So they developed Roundup Ready corn. And that corn, you could pour glyphosate all over it and it will do nothing to it. So now you could fire all of those workers who are expensive and you hire one airplane and they fly over the fields, they saturate the entire landscape with glyphosate. Everything dies except the Roundup Ready corn. And within a couple of years, Roundup Ready corn was now on 90% of the corn, 95% of the corn in the United States is now Roundup Ready corn. And so, but it was still being, and then they developed it for soybean and for, um, and for uh, barley, for sorghum, for a lot of other plants. But it was still being applied early in the season. And then in 2000, around 2006, they discovered that if you sprayed it on wheat late in the season, it would desiccate the wheat. In other words, it would dry it out. And one of the big losses for farmers is wheat is if it rains during the harvest season, you can't harvest it because it gets moldy. And so if you can spray a desiccant on it and dries it out and kills it, you can harvest it right away and it won't get moldy. So all the wheat in our country started being sprayed that year in 2006 with glyphosate. And that's the year you saw this explosion of celiac diseases and, uh, you know, gluten allergies and all of this stuff that people, you know, that you may have noticed around then. But they also did. The first time they were, and excuse me, the first time they're, they're spraying it directly on food. Because it used to be they were spraying it early in the season. And it would, you know, it would wash off and the, and the corn would get higher than the, the weeds and you wouldn't have to do it. But, but now they're spraying it directly on our food. Sorry, Joe, go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, so what they, when they, when they started doing this, is there's a direct result? Like you can see the increase in celiac disease? You can see, is this like documented? Well, no, these are... No, that's not documented. That's I mean, not documented. but the, these are there are there's a whole range of diseases that are now, you know, that people are are that science different levels of science have linked to glyphosate exposure. Here's the thing: in when you litigate, 
you when you when you're suing somebody for a chemical exposure you have to go through a a, 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 a threshold called the Daubert hearing and the Daubert hearing is a hearing that says is there sufficient science that it's now considered kind of mainstream that um, we can show this to a jury and the judge has to make that decision because the judge doesn't want people saying you know coming in and saying uh, you know uh, 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 a loud noises made me crazy right right you there has to be before and and then a, a good attorney might be able to convince a, a jury that yeah this my client got crazy because he heard a loud noise um, so the judge needs to make a threshold decision about whether there's sufficient science to show a jury, and that is a very high threshold. So of all of the diseases that are probably caused, probably almost certainly caused by glyphosate, the only one to pass that threshold was the case that we bought for, um, for Hodgkin, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So at, the, at that point, we had enough rat studies, enough human studies, we had about 10 of each, and we were able to go to the judge and say, "This we got enough science on this now to show that it's uh, that that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is being caused by glyphosate." So that those were the only cases we brought. The other thing, but there are a lot of of you know really interesting studies that show links between injuries to children and the um, and the amount of glyphosate in a woman's urine and the mother's urine, you know, including a lot of. Uh, um, including um, sexual development. It's an endocrine disruptor. So, um, you know... Similar to phthalates? Like phthalates are an endocrine disruptor. Probably the most disturbing endocrine disruptor, and this is something we should all be looking at, is yeah. atrazine. Yeah. Because atrazine, which is now ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But you can take atrazine, and, there, you know, this... you you. What is his name? Jamie. Jamie. Young you, Jamie. You, you can look up. <laughs> you can look up this study. I think the guy, the scientist's name is Tyler, I think. And that might be his first or second name. But they took atrazine and they put it in a tank with 40 frogs for yeah. uh, three years. They put it below the exposure levels that EPA considers acceptable to humans. And 30 of those frogs, they were all male frogs, and they were double Z, you know, male frogs, so they were super males. And 30 of those frogs were chemically castrated. Four of them turned into females and produced fertile eggs. So they took male frogs, gave them atrazine, 10% of them turned into female and produced fertile eggs. And we're subjecting our children to exposure to that every day. What is atrazine? It's in the water. It's a, it's a pesticide. Here it is. Report toxic herbicide found in many Texans drinking water. That's it. That's from 2018, November 20th. Yeah, and what, you know, what does this do to sexual development in children? Nobody knows, because we, we know what it does to frogs. Yeah. But, um, you know, nobody knows what that does to, you know, what it's doing. Those kind of persistent exposures would do to our children. Yeah, it's terrifying. So atrazine, um, microplastics, all, all those things are having an effect, a similar effect on um, yeah. reproductive systems. Yes. 
Yeah, we had uh, Dr. Shanna Swan who wrote that book, uh, Countdown, that's all about this, about the declining fertility rates, the uh, higher rates of miscarriage with women. Yeah. yeah. Um, what has this been like for you? Because up until those women came to, uh, to see you speak, your, your life had been, I mean, obviously, you went through a lot with your father being assassinated, with your uncle being assassinated, you, you being a part of this very public, both in service and in just being famous family. And then you take on this thing and even members of your own family sort of disavowed your opinions and uh, attacked you for it. And what I find remarkable, genuinely, is uh, the way you have been able to communicate with people who approach you with this uh, erroneous idea of what you stand for and that you can just rationally have a conversation with them and saying, if I'm wrong, I'd like you to tell me where I'm wrong. And those conversations are fascinating. It's because people just want to shut you down. They just want to stop talking about it. Like they don't want to give you the time like, like you just had to, to lay all this out. It's a thing people don't want to believe. What is that like to be a person who carries around a thing that people don't want to believe? But that seems to be true. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to say this. That, that what you let me do just now, which probably lost a lot of your listeners, because no, nobody wants to listen to No, uh, no, no. I, I, I do not think that's true at all. But I, I'm so grateful to you, because, uh, you know, for 18 years, nobody's let me do that. I mean, I, actually, John Stewart let me do that in 2005. And uh, you can go look at his, um, his uh, and, and Scarborough, Joe Scarborough, on the, you know, in 2005, when my article came out, and that was it. And then they were, and they immediately... A week later, were disavowing me. Yeah. So, yeah. And you've been like a hero. I mean, you're an institution that's kind of a critical institution of this era, uh, because um, you, you know, you've allowed, you've maintained this little island of free speech in a, you know, in a sort of a desert of suppression and and and, and of critical thinking, which is, you know, you've been a champion of critical thinking. My uncle, when my my aunt. Jackie met my uncle, um, uh, Jack John Kennedy. She was, he was a senator and, and a confirmed bachelor, and she was a um, she was a reporter, a journalist, and she did this kind of man on the street interviews um, with people. These kind of quick kind of uh, uh, interview, and she asked him what his best quality was. And she expected him to say courage because he'd been a war hero and he had written a book and run a Pulitzer Prize for Profiles in Courage. Uh, but the answer that he, he gave her was curiosity. And I think that is the quality that made him a great president because he was able to put himself in other people's shoes. He had a level of empathy about other humans where he was always thinking about what it would be like, you know, why would people do things that um, and act in certain ways, including Khrushchev and Castro. And when he when he had conversations and exchanges with those people, um, he was able to put himself in their shoes. And it actually, his, his most important speech was the, uh, the speech he gave 60 years ago 
three days ago, it was the 16th of June 10th of, um, of 1963, and it was the speech at American University about, um, about uh, trying to persuade Americans to change their minds because they were universally against the nuclear atmospheric test ban treaty that he was trying to push. And that speech turned the country around. It was one of the most important, impactful speeches in history. And in that speech, he told Americans what it was like to be Russian. It was the strangest speech. And, you know, because I was raised, and most Americans of that era were raised thinking that we won World War II. And he said to them, you know, we believe this. I was watching Combat Vic Morrow with Combat, you know, every week with my brothers. It was all about how the Americans won. And he said, that's not what happened. The Russians won the war. And they paid uh, in a way that no nation should ever have to pay. One in every seven Russians died, you know, at Hitler's hands. And a third of the Russians, he said, imagine if America, every city and every building was leveled from the East Coast to Chicago. That's what happened to Russia. And he, said, he was telling Americans, you know, they... They're not evil. They're having a rational reaction when they develop a nuclear problem. They don't want to be invaded again. And we have to somehow make them feel safe if we're going to have peace in this in this world. It was just a beautiful, beautiful speech. And um, it came, I think, because he had that gift of curiosity. And, you know, you have that. And I think, um, and you have this love for critical thinking and this admiration you have this parade of people on here you know like the weinsteins and all these other people who are thinking out of the box and who are not um subsumed in in orthodoxies but are able to break away from those orthodoxies and you know and and have a kind of and and see the humanity and everybody and everything and it's beautiful so i think when the history of this time is written, that you're, you will have a, a, um, the role that you played in it, you know, and if we manage to get our way out of this kind of totalitarian trajectory, I think a lot of that will be, you know, because of what you did. I, um, in answer to your question, and this is a roundabout answer, but my, about a week before, no, about two weeks before he died, my father gave me a book, and the book was a book by Camus, um, who was one of his favorite writers. My father, after my uncle's death, went through a period of kind of reassessment of his own sort of relationship with God and with the Catholic Church and religion, and he never rejected the Catholic Church. He always embraced it. But he began to look for meaning in other areas, in poetry and in Shakespeare, and uh, and particularly in the existentialists. So he, he, and one of the existentialists was Camus, and Camus had written this book called The Plague. My father gave it to me, and he told me with this kind of peculiar intensity, I want you to read this. And he had given me, he always gave me stuff to read, poetry and stuff, but he said this with this, uh, with this directness that after he died, I ended up reading that book about three times, trying to figure out kind of what the message was that he was, you know, he was trying to give me. And... Um, and the book is about a doctor who is in a city in North Africa where there's an unnamed plague ravaging the city. It's a walled city and it's quarantined. And the city is, a, the plague is something nobody's ever seen before. And most of the people who get it are dying. 
it's a huge infection fatality rate. And this is, and the, a lot of the book, the beginning is this conversation the doctor is having to himself as he's locked, you know, in his room. And he's, uh, he's trying to say, I, I don't want to go out there because if I go out there, I'm going to catch it. And I can't really help these people anyway because we don't know, you know, anything about this disease. We don't know how to treat it. And everybody gets it dies. So why, you know, why don't I just stay here and wait it out? And then in the end, he ends up leaving and he, he ends up just comforting people. And, uh, and they, you know, they, uh, Camus was an existentialist, which are kind of the legates of the, of the Greek and, um, and Roman tradition of Stoicism. And what he was saying about this doctor is the doctor had brought order to the chaos of this, what was happening in the city, through by doing his own duty and going out and out and being of service to other people, even at great sacrifice to himself. And the, the kind of the, the iconic hero of Stoicism is Sisyphus. And Sisyphus is, uh, is condemned by the gods because he does a good deed for humanity to, for eternity, to push a rock up a hill. And then when he gets to the top of the hill, the boulder, oh, he can never get it over the top. It always rolls back down and, and on top of him and kind of mangles him. And then he goes up and does it again. But in the, in the Stoic cosmology, Sisyphus is a happy man because he put his his shoulder to the stone he was given a duty and he does his duty and um and that and that that, that self-sacrifice that he makes brings order to a chaotic universe and you know we're all living in a kind of chaotic universe so for me to have kind of a concrete task that i know is right you know and i'm open to criticism I have a critical mind. If somebody shows me where I got it wrong, I'll change. I'm not dug in. I'm not hard-headed in that sense. But until somebody shows me that, I'm going to try to help these children. And, you know, and I feel like it's a gift. So, and the more people heap abuse on me, um, the more, the bigger the gift is in some way. Was the the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, was that the first time, uh, and it, because it happened during the pandemic, I, I, that was the first time I noticed a break in the narrative where more people were paying attention to you and more, people weren't dismissing you as easily anymore. And the book itself was a critical hit um, amongst yeah, a lot. Yeah, the book sold a million copies, I think, in three months. Most of people with that no have read reviews. It. Yeah. Um, and with a lot of, you know, I mean, really people going out, of, the mainstream corporate media going out of its way to ignore it. And how many copies did it sell? It sold a million copies in three months. And then it's all, you know, since then, I don't know how many, but it's continued to kind of hover up, you know, in the top, you know, 100 on Amazon. Most of the booksellers wouldn't sell it. Like the independent booksellers, Barnes & Noble, uh, took it out of most of their stores. They wouldn't sell it in most of their stores. And the Which independent booksellers almost all boycotted it. It's the only place you could really reliably get it was Amazon. It was odd because those are people who are usually against censorship. Yeah. And yet they were, you know, that this, this, you know, all of this weird stuff happened with the censorship then where people, yeah. I know, you know, 
you consider yourself a liberal in most, and you know, as do I. Um, but um, well, what it means to be a liberal has changed in a, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And uh, it is, uh, it's not uh, about the social issues as much as it is about this uh, subscribing to whatever the orthodoxy or wh whatever the ideology preaches. And it seems like when it comes to things like vaccines, like that is something you never question. And this is the, the name that shall not be uttered. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you start questioning things, people get angry at you. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it unless they know someone has been injured. And when that happens, generally, people have an open mind and they start to change. And I think so many people know so many people that have been injured now that they're a little more critical. And then shows like Dope Sick and then all these different articles where you see like the Sackler family bought off immunity. They, they, they can't get prosecuted. They, they gave up like $6 billion out of how many whatever billions they made selling these things that they knew absolutely to be addictive. It's, um, there's enough people now that feel duped that they're willing to open their mind. There's still some people that have, they're dug in and that's what's going to be interesting about this. It is interesting because yeah. it's unclear to me. You want some tea? We got a cup right there. Yeah. It's unclear to me how a, uh, how, how an orthodoxy unravels. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, and Mark Twain said it, I think it was Mark Twain, yeah, said it, that it's easier to fool somebody than to persuade, it's easier to fool a man than to persuade him that he's been fooled. Right. Once they swallow, it, yeah. they, they don't want to relinquish it because... Well, ego. Yeah, yeah ego, or, or it just threatens their, you know, their worldview. And, and there's so many things that are threatening about believing the counter narrative that you know you and I now is, are seeing, um, because then can I trust my doctor? Can I trust you know the, the authorities? Can I trust my country and all of that? And it's really this the entire cosmology around which we've kind of you know weaved and constructed our lives. The whole foundations are you have to start questioning everything, and most people don't want to do that. It's just it's. Uh, you know, I think it's terrifying, and I understand that. You know, I see it in my family. Yeah. It's certainly bizarre. It's bizarre to witness. It's bizarre to witness because, uh, you know, I've, I've witnessed it with people that I, I, you know, I was a fan of intellectually. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing them buy into this, and, I, and then I see these telltale signs of them not willing to adjust with with new data, with new information, and understanding that they've been duped and still digging their heels in because they they've already defended themselves once, so now they defend themselves. So now they double down, and then now they seek out all these. I've seen people defend the natural spillover hypothesis, which at this point seems kind of ridiculous, you know. And Michael Schellenberger actually just published something today about that, where there's even more evidence that it was from the the very lab that they think it's yeah. from. Yeah. 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 Well, those conversations too, the email conversations after it was, it had happened, and then the conversations with Fauci and Rand Paul were infuriating. Those, yeah. those were infuriating. They were so crazy. Senator, you do not know what you are talking about. This yeah. appeal, appeal to authority, this try, trying to diminish what he's saying, when uh, what he's saying is what people have been quietly saying that understood what was going on. But I mean, 
You, uh, I mean, did you lose friendships, like, personally? Yeah, but that was okay. But not much. <laughs> not No one I really liked. Yeah, it was... Uh, did you just discover that you didn't like them? Or? No, I just, <laughs> I knew there was a lot of cowards. I knew. I had, like, casual relationships with some cowards. And uh, some of them attacked me. And I'm like, good. Now I don't have to talk to you anymore. I've got a lot of friends. I'm very happy. Yeah. So for me, it was fine. And then most of my friends were comics, uh, a lot of comics and a lot of jujitsu guys, uh, very like-minded in, in in their approach to this thing. They they weren't really interested in becoming an experiment. And uh, a lot of them because they were touring a lot, and a lot of them because they're in clubs a lot, and that they were getting it, and they they already had it. And so this uh, idea that even after getting it and getting over it, that somehow or another they had to get injected, and it didn't make any sense to them. They're like, why? Like this doesn't this doesn't follow what even the studies are showing about natural immunity due to pre prior uh, previous infection. Because they had a previous infection, they they knew that there was supposedly at, at some point in time was the studies were showing that it was seven times more effective than getting a vaccine and the vaccine the effectiveness it was showing it was very short and even then people even after i got over covid i had people that i like that i admired they were telling me you should get vaccinated now i said why why does it make it make sense to me sanjay gupta said that to me I'm like make it make sense to me why should i do it because you'd be even more more protected i go i got over it quick I got over it in three, I made a video in three days, and it looked too good. So CNN put a filter on it and made me look yellow on TV. <laughs> Did you see that? No. You never saw that? No. Oh, no I, I, I totally believe that. I'm going to show it to you just because it's so ridiculous, just so you can see it, because it's so ridiculous. Because three days later, I had, I had one day where I felt like shit. The next day I felt better, and then the day after that I make this video. And I was saying essentially that I had to cancel the shows that I was doing with Dave Chappelle that weekend. Uh, but so that's the top one is the CNN version, <laughs> and that the, the bottom one is the real version. This is me outside in Texas, so it's nice and sunny out. And look what they did to my face; they made me look like I was ill. That looks like a, a cadaver. It's crazy what they did. Yeah, it's very bizarre. But the fact that that's a news organization that did that is so terrifying because it's such a trivial thing. And that they concentrated on this one uh, medication that my doctor prescribed for me, which was ivermectin. They didn't concentrate on all the other stuff that I took. They didn't concentrate on the Z-Pak. They didn't concentrate on the prednisone. They didn't concentrate on the um, monoclonal antibodies or the IV drip of vitamins that I did and um, NAD, the uh, NAD plus cocktail. I did a lot of stuff. Yeah, I did all the same stuff. Yeah, and I got better quick. And, yeah, me too. But, but no one cared that I got better. That was not the narrative. The narrative is like Joe Rogan is taking veterinary medication. And then Rolling Stone printed an article saying that these hospital emergency rooms were getting overrun with people overdosing on horse medication and gunshot victims had to wait in line. Well, first of all, how many people are getting gunshot in Oklahoma? And waiting in line. Yeah, and they're waiting in line. Also, when you're showing the the line that they use for the graphic, it was people wearing winter coats, and it, it had nothing yeah, I, to I do. I saw with somebody that. somebody track down where that real photo came yeah. from. It had nothing to do. Nothing with, to do with this fraud. But it's crazy that somehow or another that snuck through Rolling Stone. Well, Rolling Stone has made a big change. You know, the guy who runs that now is a guy called Noah Schlackman. 
and I used to have a great relationship. You know, I grew up with Jan and, and um, his kids and stuff, and I published there a lot. But the, he, the guy who runs it now is a guy with deep connections to the intelligence community and, you know, is, uh, is, is really uh, deep, deep in the orthodoxy. It's not a counterculture magazine anymore. It's now a, it's now a culture, you know, it's in, in the center. But um, oh, the one thing I wanted to mention to you, you know, one of the incredible studies that came out, which is not surprising, uh, but the Cleveland Clinic study. Yeah, we which, talked about that recently. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and it, it show, I think I, I read it, I could be wrong about this, but I just was reading the abstract for somebody the other day, and it looked like, I mean, what that study shows is that the vaccine gives you some protection in the, for the first two months. But then it wanes precipitously, and it wanes into negative efficacy after seven months. So, in other words, if you got vaccine, you're more likely to get sick. It does the opposite. But this is what Fauci said at the very beginning. If you go back and look at his tapes, it could make you actually more susceptible. Yeah. And that is exactly what it does. Um, and it, but what it's what that study shows: the more vaccines you get, the more likely it is that you're going to get sick. And that um, the people who are most vaccinated have 3.5 times the rate, and I could be wrong about this, but I think this was said 3.5 times uh, the the risk of illness that that people who are unvaccinated. So I mean that's that's not a good profile for you know a medical product. No, it's I mean, not. We would have done better if they'd just given everybody vitamin D. But what I found was really fascinating, there was a lot of people after I got sick that wanted me to immediately get vaccinated to join the team. That's what it seemed like they wanted me to do. Yeah. It seemed like there was a battle for with some sort of ideological high ground, and they wanted me to say, wow, I should have gotten vaccinated. I'm like, look, I've had diseases that were worse than this. I've had the flu that was worse than this. But also, I'm aware of ways to treat certain colds and flus and things that you can actually do things yeah. to, to improve your immune system yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and also uh, yeah you know i had a maddening conversation with uh peter hotez once uh, well he's that guy is is um i i mean it's it's hard just watching a guy sit there and tell things that he's got to know are not true I don't know if he knows they're not true, but he's a strange example. Because when I was talking to him, he's overweight, and I, I asked him, does, does he eat well? He doesn't. He's saying, you know, he, he, he likes junk food, he eats junk food too much, he doesn't exercise, very walks a little, he was saying, he doesn't take vitamins. And I was like, this is a crazy conversation. So you're advocating for this experimental mRNA vaccine technology and you don't even do anything else to improve your immune system like you don't do there's all the studies on vitamins on whether it's vitamin c vitamin d you know exposure to sunlight increases your vitamin d as well it's very good for the immune system there's all these studies on this there's, there's plenty of studies on what happens to people when they're nutrient deficient as well like your all of your systems are functioning yeah. you know, incorrectly, and there's also studies on people that got administered to the ICU with COVID that somewhere in the neighborhood above seventy percent were deficient in vitamin D. Yeah, oh, I think it was over ninety percent. Yeah, it's it's to have a conversation with someone who doesn't yeah. take vitamins and is telling you you have to take this medication. It's like 
this is a crazy conversation because you know what health is like metabolic health yeah. is it's a very nuanced thing and there's a lot going on with it and it has a lot to do with what you put in your body it has a lot to do with the foods you consume it has a lot to do with exercise and drinking water it has a lot to do with your electrolyte balance it has a lot to do with the nutrient content of your diet so if you're if you're not doing any of that and you're yeah. telling everybody they got to get jabbed this is a crazy conversation <laughs> well that all that you know meditated that i that i was talking about in the Geyer study, you know, and it's really interesting that the graphs that go along with it, one of the, you know, the graphs that go through each disease and they show when the disease was killing people and then there's this huge decline and then it goes flat, so it's not killing anybody more. Then the vaccine is introduced. Yeah. And it's disease after disease after disease, the same thing happened. And it was, it's all because people started getting better nutrition and their immune systems were okay and if you look at the kids in africa who die from measles or these other infectious diseases they're all malnourished in fact the only people really dying from measles in the 60s before they introduced the vaccines that i think that the death rate had gone down to like a, from you know tens of thousands per year to like a couple of hundred a year this was by 63, and they were all kids. Most of them were kids in the Mississippi Delta, black kids, severely malnourished, and they were dying of measles. And, you know, this was before the war on poverty, before my father visited Delta. And, um, you know, it's hard for a disease to kill a healthy person. It's hard for an infectious disease to kill a healthy person with a rugged immune system. Well, not the Spanish flu, though, right? Well, the Spanish flu was not a virus. Oh, and even um, Fauci now acknowledges that. And they, you know, there's there's good evidence that the Spanish flu. There's there's you know not not a definitive, but very very strong evidence. Uh, the Spanish flu was vaccine induced flu. The the, the deaths were uh, vaccine induced, but the the death, originally they said it was a flu. But when they've gone back and actually they have all the sam the samples from thousands of people, they died from bacteriological uh, pneumonia. So they died as a consequence of something that you could cure today with, with antibiotics. Ampicillin. Okay. Yeah. So when we say, but they still, so what was their, so they, you're saying they had a compromised immune system already, but why? Well, but, but a lot of the, you know, bacteriological illnesses can kill you. Yeah is that a lot of the viral illnesses, you know, if you're super healthy, it's pretty hard for them to kill you. I mean, I, and I'm just saying this, not on any individual basis, but on a population basis. If you look at populations that are well-nourished, you don't see uh, infectious disease mortalities anymore. So, uh, and that's across, you know, I don't think anybody would argue with that. So what are you, what are you saying that the Spanish flu was? And like, what is the, the, the documentation? Well, the uh, you know i you said that fauci has publicly fauci, uh, fauci wrote an article in 2008 and uh that i'm pretty sure it's 2008 in which he not acknowledged that it was not the flu that was killing those people it was a bacteriological infection and a bacteriological infection these days you could 100 percent cure all of it with an antibiotic but so, but something was making them ill and to make them vulnerable to and the that, bacteriological that's unclear. And, you know, I read an article recently, and, and you can look up these articles pretty easily. 
but there, the, the article that I read made a very strong case that the illness came from testing a new vaccine in Kansas at a military base in Kansas. And I, again, I'm a little hazy on the details. But this is important to cover, right? So right. let's see if we can find this. Predominant role of bacteria pneumonia as cause of death in pandemic influenza uh, implications. Uh, yeah, of uh, pandemic influenza preparedness. So what this is saying is that bacterial pneumonia was the cause of death, but these people obviously, were, were, they were saying that they had they were sick before this. Correctly, correct? Is that true? You know what? I, I you know I shouldn't talk about this joke. Okay, so this is what I don't remember enough about let's, it. Let's read what he says. The results: postmortem samples were examined from people who died of influenza during the 1918 to 1990. 1919 rather uniformly exhibited severe changes indicative of bacteria bacterial pneumonia bacteriologic and histopathologic results from published autopsy series clearly and consistently implicated secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria in most influenza fatalities yeah, and and some people have suggested that came from getting people to wear masks Oh, Jesus. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. How would that be? That the mass became the bacteria. A, a, a media a for bacteria. Conclusions. The majority of deaths from the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic likely resulted directly from secondary bacterial pneumonia caused by common upper respiratory tract bacteria. Less substantial data from the subsequent 1957 and 1968 pandemic are consistent with these findings. If severe pandemic influenza is largely a problem of bacterial, viral bacterial copathogenesis, pandemic planning needs to go beyond addressing the viral cause alone, example, influenza vaccine, vaccines and antiviral drugs, that's hilarious. Yeah, Prevention, right. diagnosis, prophylaxis, and treatment of secondary bacterial pneumonia as well as stockpiling of antibiotics and bacterial vaccines should be high priorities for t pandemic planning. Yeah, so he didn't remember that. Yeah. But um, let me let me ask you something that you were talking about before, because you said a lot of the comedians, um, you know, were uh, were skeptical. But yes. what, what I saw was the opposite. You know, I saw the comedians that should have been questioning everything you know that were that were falling sort of canceling people who ask questions and including all the ones you know john stewart and stephen colbert they kind of stopped i thought they stopped being funny because they you know comedians are funny when they're when they're ridiculing authority and well they all had to stop doing that the only that. one i know out of that group is john i know john and john's a great guy i have not talked to him I talked to him um, in the middle of it all. I haven't talked to it since, but I, I thought it was hilarious when he was on Colbert and he was doing that routine. That was really good. Yeah, that yeah. was hilarious. I ha I tried to stay off Twitter because I, I generally think, especially when it comes to things like uh, that are uh, high anxiety subjects, whether it's climate change, the war in Ukraine, or uh, COVID. I think it facilitates mental illness. I think a lot of these people are, um, they, they fester on things and they, 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 
they have high anxiety. And when you subject them to being locked inside their home and you offer them only one way out, and that way is this vaccine, and they trust the science because they're smart people. Smart people trust the science. And they, they believe that, you know, we have to all be in this together, and you're a good person if you go out and get vaccinated. So you show your, your picture on your little Instagram page, got vaccinated, and everybody knows you're a good person. And then there's this sort of feedback loop. And then they start attacking people that differ from this. And then they start, you know, calling you, my mother died from this or my grandmother died from this, as if you somehow or another did it, not the fucking people that did this crazy research in Wuhan, China, and then lied about it. And then we're, we're like, no one's mad at them. For the same comedians that should have been questioning everything, you know, that were, that were Falling sort of on. canceling people who ask questions and it, including all the ones you know john stewart and stephen colbert they kind of stopped i thought they stopped being funny because they you know comedians are funny when they're when they're ridiculing authority and well they all had to stop doing that the only that. one i know out of that group is john i know john and john's a great guy i have not talked to him i talked to him um in the middle of it all i haven't talked to it since but i i thought it was hilarious when he was on colbert and he was doing that routine. That was really good. Yeah, that yeah. was hilarious. I ha I try to stay off Twitter because I I generally think, especially when it comes to things like uh, that are uh, high anxiety subjects, whether it's climate change, the war in Ukraine, or uh, COVID. Uh, I think it facilitates mental illness. I think a lot of these people are um, they they fester on things and they 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 have high anxiety. And when you subject them to being locked inside their home and you offer them only one way out, and that way is this vaccine, and they trust the science because they're smart people. Smart people trust the science. And they, they believe that, you know, we have to all be in this together, and you're a good person if you go out and get vaccinated. So you show your, your picture on your little Instagram page, got vaccinated, and everybody knows you're a good person. And then there's this sort of feedback loop. And then they start attacking people that differ from this. And then they start, you know, calling you, my mother died from this or my grandmother died from this, as if you somehow or another did it, not the fucking people that did this crazy research in Wuhan, China, and then lied about it. And then we're, we're like, no one's mad at them. For the same people who are mad at comedians for questioning it, were applauding Fauci, even though there was all these, there was clear conversations that showed that, yes, they were doing what, what we consider to be gain-of-function research there. Yes, the NIH funded this. Yes, this is all true. And when he's being confronted by Rand Paul, and you, you see him, like he's essentially just lying in front of the American people. It's just, And the same people that generally are these critical thinkers, they were so enamored by this narrative and then so captive by it and then also captive by their initial assertions. They're a prisoner of their, of their initial statements on it. And they didn't want to say they were wrong. It took a lot of people a long time to say, I fucked up, or, this, that's not true. It's not, I, I was Has wrong. Has anybody actually said that? To me, yeah, 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 a good friend of mine, yeah. Very good friend of mine who got really scared and got vaccinated and thought I was being an idiot. And then along the way started paying attention and, and got COVID really bad. You know, and I helped them out and sent a nurse to them and got them IV vitamins. And it's, it's just one of those things where uh, it's a stress test. It's a stress test for people's character. It's a stress test for anxiety levels. It's a stress test for community bonds. It's a stress test for friendships. It's a stress test. 
and you get to see, you get to see what it was like. And I feel, uh, honestly, even though I was in the center of it all, I felt very fortunate because uh, I, I can have no questions about how it actually works, how the system actually works to go against people that are dissenters. I can have no questions because I was in the middle of it. I saw it. I saw it happen. I saw the CNN thing where they made my face yellow and said I was taking <laughs> horse medication, which is that the most, the, to say that and repeat that over and over again is such a clear indication that they conspired. It's such a, because it's, it's uniform. It's horse dewormer, uniform. A medication that's used far more often on human beings. It's been prescribed for... Billions. Yeah, it's insane. And the fact uh, and that... Won, and won the Nobel Prize for, for efficacy in humans. Yeah, in humans. Yeah. It was wild. It was just but wild. They had, they had to do it. They had to discredit ivermectin. Because, you know why, because there's a federal law, the federal law, the emergency use authorization statute says that you cannot issue, you cannot issue an emergency use authorization to a vaccine if there is an existing medication that has been approved for any purpose that, had, that is demonstrated effective against the target illness. So they had to destroy ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and discredit it and they had to tell everybody it's not effective because if they had acknowledged that it's effective in anybody the whole 200 billion dollar vaccine enterprise would have collapsed it's um it's a very strange and difficult to navigate subject because there's so many studies and there's a lot of studies that seem to point to the fact that ivermectin doesn't work well for people that have covid yeah, I, I, you know, we've looked at all the studies and we, you know, there's, there's over a hundred studies on ivermectin and, you know, I, I think they're on our website, on CHC's website. And then there were a series of studies and this is what they always do. This is what they did with autism. They designed studies to fail. So they, you know, in fact, they design studies, and the way they design them to fail is by giving people lethal doses of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, in, in Brazil, the researchers were charged with homicide, you know, and that was one of those, they, I, I forget whether it was called the, the Solidarity Study, but it was one of the studies that was commissioned by WHO, paid for by Bill Gates and his people, and... Um, and that, you know, they were literally giving people four or five times the uh, prescribed doses of, of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in order, and, you know, these were elderly people on their deathbeds, and a lot of them could not take that level of toxicity and die. And so then they were able to say, oh, it kills people. But it wasn't killing anybody they gave the prescribed doses to. And, you know, and Gates knew what the prescribed dose was for hydroxychloroquine because his uh, because he, his foundation gives it to hundreds of millions of people every year in Africa for malaria control. And so it wasn't, you know, it's hard to say that it was a mistake that they were overdosing these people. So it was a, a situation where you have the emergency use authorization and that won't work if you have a medication that also works. And then you have this medication that also works that happens to be generic. Yeah, that costs five cents a pill instead of $3,000 a dose like remdesivir. Yeah. Oh, remdesivir, the reason they like remdesivir 
is because remdesivir, you have to get, you give IV in the hospital um, at end of, you know, at the end of life, it's not prophylactic. And they didn't want something that was prophylactic or early cure. Because that would have meant they, they would have, the whole vaccine issue, you know, would have fallen apart. Remdesivir was crazy because remdesivir in 2019, so right before the pandemic, Fauci had remdesivir in a, in a, in a Ebola trial with four other drugs in Africa. And the IRB, the, the, you know, the safety panel that, you know, you have to have a safety panel um, for, it's called the Institutional Review Board for every clinical trial. The safety panel stopped, stepped in and pulled remdesivir out because it was killing so many people. It was, it was killing more people than Ebola. Ebola kills 53% of the people who get it. And this, and the remdesivir was doing worse. So why would you take that out of an Ebola, that got thrown out of an Ebola trial and give it to people who, with a disease that has an infection fatality rate of 1%? Well, it's insane. I would say that's insane if I didn't know that there was a history of doing similar things. Yeah. And the AIDS crisis with AZT. Yeah. AZT, which was initially a chemotherapy medication that was killing people in a two-week dose. They were giving them two, two weeks of yeah. this stuff was killing people faster than AIDS was killing people. Yeah. And they went and took that. Excuse me, well, faster than cancer was killing people. And they went and took that and started it was, giving it, it was to regarded people that as had too AIDS. dangerous or to treat as a cancer. Right. As with, with cancer, you give it, you know, in the simplest terms, you're giving a chemotherapy drug that is going to kill you. 100% of the time, it's going to kill you. And, you know, at least in those, at that era, because it's designed to kill human tissue. Right. And you're hoping that it will kill the tumor before it kills the, you know, the prost. And it was it was it was thrown out as too dangerous to use for two weeks in chemotherapy, and now they're they they decided okay we're going to give it to people lifetime course of it to people of AIDS and of course it's going to kill you know anybody on it is going to kill. Well, the Arthur Ashe thing blew me away because I didn't know that Arthur Ashe was asymptomatic when he, when yeah. he, and then he died right after he started taking AZT. And he said publicly, I don't want to be on this. I, don't, I think it's hurting me, but my doctor is going to get mad at me if I get off of it. And how many other people? How many people died from ACT? Well, Nuriev, too. It's the same thing. He was completely healthy, and they put him on ACT, and he died. Well, how many people did die? What was the overall number I've, from no, ACT? I have to go back and read my book. But it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just the fact that that playbook existed, they've done it this way in the past and gotten away with it. And that when they have drugs that are approved and they already have these drugs, and if these drugs didn't work on that thing, they'll try them on this thing. And then they'll say... In the case of AZT, there's a video of Fauci saying the reason why it's the only drug we recommend or that, that is prescribed is because it's safe and effective. Yeah. He actually said that about AZT. And he knew at that time. Which is a crazy thing. That the only way, the, the way, I mean, one of the tricks, one of the tricks they were using is the people who were getting the AZT, they were also giving blood transfusions too. Yes. 
which were keeping them alive and making it seem, if you yeah. give somebody a blood transfusion, it's going to, you know, it perks them up and keeps you alive longer. And, uh, and so they were keeping those people alive artificially in order to, you know, make the drug look like it actually was efficacious. That's the, the crazy thing is what they're allowed to do in studies. And uh, one of the first correspondence that you and I had was uh, we had read something where the, the description of why the COVID vaccines were 100% effective and what they used to make that distinction. It's not, no, it, like, explain that. Explain that, because it's such a bizarre, the way they do it, it seems yeah, like it I should mean, be illegal. What, what they did with the COVID vaccine is they, they gave the COVID, for the, this is the Pfizer trial. We know a lot about the Pfizer trial because that was the one, that was, Pfizer was the one to get an approved vaccine. You know, it got the, it did another trick. It got one of its vaccines approved, the Cominarty vaccine, but that vaccine was not available in this country. But they were able to say to people, oh, we have an approved vaccine, and that made it okay for the colleges and everybody else to force you to take an emergency use authorization vaccine, which is illegal. You, nobody can t tell you to participate in a medical experiment. Um, and so they played this kind of shell game. But in order to get that, um, they, they had to reveal their testing. And what they, what they, what they did was they gave uh, 22,000 people the vaccine and 22,000 similarly situated people the uh, placebo and in the after six months and they they actually they promised to do a five-year study but then they cut it back to two months or four months and and unblinded it you know right at the beginning so which is total deception there's now we don't know what any of the you know long-term effects are. There's a lot of impacts from these um, the, from the vaccines, like every other drug, that have long diagnostic horizons and long incubation periods. And if you don't have a five-year placebo-controlled trial, as Fauci himself has said, you need eight years. He said you're going to miss a lot, and you could have mayhem, and that's exactly So they used the excuse that this pandemic was so deadly yeah, that they had to unblind the trial and yeah. give this medication to everyone, otherwise it would be unethical. Yeah, otherwise it would be unethical. So, You think that that was done on purpose? Do you think that was done well, to I don't obscure? look at people's heads, but right. it's, it's not a good, the optics are not good. So, um, so what they did is they had 22,000 people got the vaccine, 22,000 did it, and they have six months of data. Some of that is unblinded, but it's six months. And uh, during that six-month period, in the vaccine group, one person died of COVID. And in the placebo group, two people died from COVID. So that allows Pfizer to tell the public and, you know, FDA to tell the public, oh, this vaccine is 100% effective because two is 100% of one. That is what insane. They, what they should have been telling Americans and what they're required to under the law is, is to give them a, a number that is called the NNTV, the number needed to vaccinate to save one life. How many people do you have to vaccinate to save one life? And the answer, of course, is you need to you need to vaccinate twenty two thousand people to save one life. So if you're gonna if you are going to um, 
if you can vaccinate 22,000 people to save one life, you better make sure the vaccine itself is not killing anybody. Because if it kills one person for 22,000, you've now canceled out the entire benefit of the product. And when they looked at the key metric, which was all-cause mortality, in other words, how many people died of all, not just from COVID, but of all causes in the vaccine group, and how many died from all causes in the, in the placebo group? The placebo group had uh, had a, a 17 people die, and um, our, and the vaccine group had 21. So what that means is there were um, there were more people died in the vaccine group. That means you But didn't the placebo group eventually take the vaccine because they were unblinded? Yeah, they were unblinded, but they, they still gave us the data, the six-month data for the people. So it's all, I mean, there's total information. So it's during six months, though, right? It's six months, it's six months of people that are adults. Some of them got it sooner, right. two or four months. But anyway, they gave us the six months of data for the two designated groups, and the, you know, it's an alarming result because there were four people who died of um, four to five people who died of cardiac arrest in the placebo in the vaccine group and only one in the placebo group what that means is if you take the vaccine you're you know 21 percent more likely to die over six months according to this data according to this data which is you know not good data and not enough of a big group of a large enough group to really make these kind of predictions but it's all they gave us. So they're stuck with this number. If you take the vaccine, you're 21% more likely to die of all causes. And, and when you look at the data, you see that there's four cardiac arrests, four to five, because one of them looks like a cardiac arrest, but it may not be. But there's at least four cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and only one in the placebo group, which means if you take the vaccine, you're 400 more, 400% more likely to die of a cardiac arrest over the next six months uh, than if you didn't. So that's not a good, you know, a product, you know, you wouldn't want to recommend that product, much less mandate it. And yet they did. You were explaining to me when we were outside before we came in here, I said I wanted to talk about it here instead. You, you were explaining how instead of using the VAIR system, that there's a method of analyzing a, a whole host of data to find out about deaths, how many coffins are ordered, how many how many people die of heart attacks, strokes. There's, there's another way to look at. It. Yeah, I mean, there, there, the guy who kind of um, showed that to the world was Ed Dowd, and Ed Dowd was a I, I, he was a he was a big Wall Street um, guy. He was one. Of, I think he he operated a one of the portfolio companies for BlackRock, um, he grew it. And again, this, you know, this needs to be checked a little and maybe James could, but I think he grew it from, you know, uh, under a billion to $14 billion. He was a, a major player in Wall Street. And the way he did that was he, he saw the 2008 crash coming because he's a numbers guy. He sees the world in terms of numbers. During the pandemic, he had no, no, no kind of early exposure to the medical freedom movement or anything else. He just started seeing data that made no sense to him, and it was um, a lot of those 
was kind of the all was the all cause mortality deaths. He started seeing people dying after vaccination that shouldn't have been dying. You know, kids on the ball fields, all of these, you know, the athletes, etc. But he was looking at these non-conventional uh, data sources, like the ones that you spoke of. He was looking at insurance industry actuarial in, insurance industry data that showed excess deaths, particularly in the younger groups, spiking after the vaccine and seeing it all over the world. And he ended up doing a book on this that is uh, that is designed to be read in, I think, an hour or 90 minutes. And it's a book, it's an extraordinary book because it has all of these graphs that are, um, that are incredibly convincing, compelling. Um, but it's, a, it's the kind of book, if you have a skeptic and you can get them to sit down for 90 minutes with this book, when they get up, they will, uh, they will have converted. Mm. Um, and it has one part of the book is, has like maybe a thousand photos of local newspapers reporting athletes dying on playing fields. These stories never made the national news, but the local papers were, were you know, because they, they'd happen at the local game, and the local papers were covering them. So there was no censorship of the local papers, and it's really, it's, uh, it's sickening. I mean, it's terrible, these, you know, these beautiful children who were dying on the playing field, and COVID was killing people, but it was yeah. old people, yeah. Cause unknown, the epidemic of sudden deaths in 2021 and 2022. Edward Dowd. Yeah. Yeah. Died after first vaccine dose. Dies at hospital. Football died on the field. And yeah, none of this um, was reported. And there's, you know, there's now there's thousands and thousands of those stories, I think. Well, they were all, one of the also kind of suppressed. Yeah, one of the data uh, points, he, he went in and looked globally People do die on playing fields. It's, it's a pretty steady average of 29 per year for 30 years. And we were getting during the after vaccination, I think 29 per month. You know, so now here's the other concern. Um, it's not just the people that died. It's the people that suffer that are alive and that have an injury and that may it may have radically shortened their life. Well, there's 15 million Americans According to um, the V-Save data and the Rasmussen poll, 15 million Americans sought medical help after the vaccine. That's, you know, and then, you know, the, the VAERS, which uh, VAERS is unreliable, but it's not unreliable because it's overestimated. It's unreliable because it's underestimated. And that's the CDC's own study says it, it undercounts injuries by between 10 and 100%. And so, or a hundred times, not a hundred percent, a hundred times. So I think VAERS has uh, 17,000 deaths um, reported and, you know, over a million uh, injuries, maybe well over a million and something like that. I and mean, James can look it up. But in 1976, when they had this, you know, really bad flu shot um, that they did the same thing with, they did a, you know, global rollout and everybody had to take it. And they pulled the shot after 25 deaths reported, 25. So now, I mean, there are, you know, we're living in a different universe now in terms of public health. I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry has 
has captured the regulatory structure and you know and, and just changed the entire way that people think about public health what do you think could be done about that and what what do you think you could do about that uh, you know i think i'm I, I am and i i don't want this to sound self-promoting but i'm ideally suited to do this because i i've spent so much time litigating and writing about these agencies that I know how to unravel corporate capture. I know exactly what to do when I, I get in there. And for, for a lot of them, I know the individuals that have to be moved out and, and the kind of individuals that need to be moved in. But also, you need to get rid of these really corrupting financial entanglements between the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory agencies that has put agency capture on steroids, for example. Almost 50% of FDA's budget comes from pharmaceutical companies. They're not working for us. They're working for the pharmaceutical company. With CDC, CDC has a $12 billion budget, and about five, almost $5 billion of that goes to buying vaccines in sweetheart deals from these, these four companies and then promoting them to the public. And so they're really partners with the pharmaceutical industry and the way that you get a promotion at CDC and the way you get recognition and salary increases and perform it, good performance reviews is by increasing vaccine uptake, not by finding problems with vaccines. And it's a, it's a really bad, it's no longer serving as a regulatory agency. NIH has probably even the worst if you work at NIH and you work on a uh, on a vaccine or other medical product, you are allowed to actually to pocket royalties from that product. So any product that you work on, you can collect royalties on. Uh, you can collect royalties that are now capped at $150,000 a year for life, forever, not just life, but for your children's lives, et cetera, as long as that product is old. You have marching rights for the patent if you worked on it at NIH. So the Moderna vaccine, which is half owned by NIH, which means NIH will get half billions and billions of dollars from the sales of that vaccine, which they made, they're promoting, they're telling everybody you need to get this. But also there's either four or six individuals who were Anthony Fauci's direct deputies who themselves are collecting $150,000 a year for life forever from that product. Although, so that the mercantile interest in making, so those are people who are not gonna find problems with the product because they're paying for their boats, they're paying for their mortgages, they're paying for their kids' education. I'm making sure that as many of those vaccines are sold as possible. So let's make kids take them even though there's no data that show they help kids, let's make every let's make pregnant women can take them, make everybody take them because they're cashing in on it, and that the mercantile you know ambitions have completely subsumed the regulatory function of those agencies, and and that has to end. You know, one of the things that we need to do too is to get rid of pharmaceutical advertising on television. There's only two countries in the world that allow it. One is New Zealand, the other is our country. Everybody who is knowledgeable is against it. Um, it and it not only has compromised, you know, has compromised public health. We now, we take largely because of that advertising, we take three or four times the amount of drugs as Europeans take. And drugs are the number three killer in our country. Pharmaceutical drugs, the number three killer after cancer and heart attacks. 
They're not making us healthier. We have, we spend more on healthcare, 4.3 trillion than any country in the world, and we have the worst health impacts. So we're behind like Mongolia, Costa Rica, Cuba, in terms of our health outcomes. Uh, all of these drugs, the pharmaceutical industry is not making us safe, safe, safer, it's not making us healthier. And you know, we changed the rule in 19, 1997. Prior to 1997, like cigarettes and liquor, you couldn't advertise on TV. We changed those rules, and FDA allowed um, the pharmaceutical companies to advertise, and they not only now have a platform from which they can tell everybody, you're sick, you need this, you need that, um, but also uh, they are able to dictate content on television. So they can dictate content on the, you know, on the local. And on YouTube. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That, that's a terrifying thing. And it's so deeply interwoven. The, the question that I would have to you is like, how do you untangle that? How well, that, you do one of those things at a time. And I, you know, I'm going to go in there and do it. I'm going to issue an executive order on day one saying there's no more advertising on TV. Now, FDA needs to implement that through the regulatory process, but I also know how the regulatory process works, and I know how to hasten it. I know how to make it work faster for the American people. So, you know, I, um, I don't, I, you know, I'm looking forward to doing this. I'm looking forward to telling FDA you're not taking pharma money anymore. You All these controversial opinions that you have, have you had anyone debate you publicly about any of these? They, nobody will debate me. For 18 years, nobody will debate me. In fact, I've scheduled many, many debates, and I, I've asked Hotez many, many times to debate me. And I think you've asked him, here, why don't you debate Robert Kennedy? And he said, because he's a cunning lawyer or something like that. Mm, but, um, yeah. but I've debated Hotez on the telephone with uh, you know, with kind of a referee, and uh, you know, I, his his science is 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 just made up. He cannot stand by it. He can't cite studies. Well, he was trying to tell me that vaccines don't cause autism. I said, yeah, okay, and his well, daughter well, has I, autism. Yeah. And he wrote a book. Yeah. That, but I know, asked my him. daughter doesn't have that didn't get her autism from a vaccine. But I've read that book, and there is no science cited in that book. It's just him saying, you know, it didn't happen. And listen. I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, and I and God bless him, and God bless that little girl, and you know I have nothing but um, you know good energy going to them, and you know, I, but I, it's not he's using her as a leverage to tell people you you know there's no problem here. But this and, is my point that I, I asked him what does, and he said it, there's a, a few there's environmental factors they're aware of. I go what are those? And he couldn't cite them. Yeah. Like, how can you be so sure to say this definitely doesn't, but you're telling me there's a bunch of environmental factors that do cause it, and we're aware of those factors, but you're not aware of them, and you're an expert in this? Yeah. How is that possible? You're. A, I mean, that, that's the main... He's a health expert. That's the big question that anybody who says it's not the vaccines, I'm like, okay, fine. But they don't want... If you but say it's me. not the vaccines, people go, oh, yeah. good. That's that's what I wanted to hear. That's so what I wanted to hear. Is it? When you say it is the vaccines, people go, "Oh my God, I don't want to hear that." They don't want to hear it, yeah. and they get angry. They get angry at you, and they go, "Oh, tin foil hat conspiracy theorist." And 
But the fact that no one will debate you speaks volumes, especially now. They can't say now that you're not popular. And what's uh, crazy is that B Biden now has decided he's not even going to debate anybody in the primary. Or uh, I, 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 I had, um, I'll just tell you one story. The Connecticut State Legislature was debating, was, uh, had a bill to end the religious exemptions for, you know, childhood vaccines in Connecticut. And the uh, head of the Democratic Party, the legislature asked me to come out and debate a Yale professor in front of the legislature. And I said, great, uh, from the Yale Medical School. And he called back and said, there's going to be two of them, and it's against you, and um, they're going to get two-thirds of the time, and you get a third. And I said, fine. And then he called back and said, there's going to be four of them, and you each get six minutes. And I said, that's all I need. And uh, it's not fair, but it's all I need. And so I fly out on a red eye. I get to the state house, and it's me and four empty chairs. Somebody told them, or they all decided, I don't know, uh, to show up and that's happened to me again and again and again and again i agree to debates and it seems like somebody gets a message but you know who knows it's obscure no, but nobody in 18 years has been willing to debate me what is that like to carry that around i mean i know you kind of described it earlier in the sisyphus analogy but it's I mean, it's got to be insanely frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, you you really handle it incredibly well. Uh, I, you know, it is. It's frustrating, but I mean, I listen. I look at these um, some of my friends that I've made over time who have children who are affected, children who you know were. Um, perfectly healthy kids who exceeded all their milestones and then they lost everything when they're two years and a lot of these kids are so severely affected uh, they'll never you know hold a job they'll never pay taxes they'll never uh, write a poem uh, they'll never throw a baseball <clears throat> they'll never go out on a date with a girl or a boy and um, they'll never serve in the military you know, their lives are so constricted and the, the parents' lives are all so shattered. You know, these are, a lot of these parents, for most of them, because the children have these, you know, severe um, anger and violence and they have these tactile sensitivities and light sensitivities and don't like strangers, that the parents uh, can't go out, they can't, you can't get a babysitter to take care of that child. And the parents just stop going out on dates. A lot of them give up their jobs. They, almost all of them, um, their careers are, are, you know, really debilitated. And I see them going through that. And, you know, anything that I go through is like nothing, nothing. So I don't, you know, spend any time thinking of myself. I don't, I just don't get frustrated by it. Because I, all I have to do is think, I'm here for those parents. And, uh, you know, and I'm lucky that, you know, I don't have to fight that battle because I, I don't know if I, what I would do. I don't know if I could take it. What pushed you to want to run for president? I saw, 
you know, I grew up so proud of this country and loving, you know, this country and being proud. And, you know, we were, I grew up in a, a magical time in American history, which the economists call the Great Prosperity. It's a, 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 a time between 1947 and like 1980, when our country became the wealthiest country in the world. We, we developed the middle class like nothing that's ever been seen in history. We, that became this economic machine and a machine for democracy. And um, it, we, were, we were generating during that period half the wealth on the face of the earth we owned here in this country. Everybody wanted American things. America was, the, you know, it was a moral authority around the world. It was a leader and everybody wanted our leadership. They don't like our bullying, but they wanted our leadership and they knew the difference. But they wanted, you know, I, I would travel in Europe when I was a kid and with my father and my mother and people just adored our country. And, um, and but people wanted blue jeans, they wanted American cars, they wanted Victrol, you know, uh, RCA Victrolas and, you know, our electronics and uh, they wanted our movies and our television and I, you know, and they, they wanted our democracy. And, you know, I want my kids to grow up with that love for our country and that pride for our country. And I don't see the path from either political party getting us there at this point. I think, um, you know, both parties have lost their way. And my party, the Democratic Party, has become the party of war. It's become the party of censorship. It's become the party of pharmaceutical companies, of, you know, the neocons, this very aggressive, belligerent uh, foreign policy, that's forever wars. And, um, and then, uh, you know, if the kind of political suppression that we saw, and, the, and this really, this kind of, this bizarre um, turning our backs on the American middle class, which is the only thing that sustains democracy. If you don't have a middle class, you cannot, any political scholar, you know, political scientist will tell you that if you have a large aggregations of wealth at the top and, uh, and widespread poverty below, that that, um, that formulation uh, is too unstable to support democracy. And nobody, and the middle class has just been wiped out in this country, and nobody's talking about it. It's really, you know, and I think that's why, you know, Trump was so popular. Is he, you know, was talking, he was the one guy who was talking to those people. And, you know, and he's a, and they're angry because nobody's listening to him. And, uh, and Trump said, you know, I, I'm listening to you, and I'm going to go break things for you. And they are angry, and they want things to get broken. And I think... You know, um, we, you know, my father used to look at Latin America, and, he, and it was the same thing back then. It was widespread poverty below, and it was, you know, wealth above. And U.S. foreign policy was to sort of fortify those oligarchies and support with weapons, et cetera, the military juntas that were keeping those people in suppression because they were anti-communist. And my father said there's going to be a revolution in those countries. And if, if we continue those policies, um, the communists are going to own the revolution and they're going to own the future. And we have to give aid directly to the poor and stop giving it to the oligarchs and stop giving it to the military. And that's why my uncle and father started the Alliance for Progress and USAID. 
to do something that had never done before, which is to develop middle class by funding the development of middle class and the poor. And I would say the same thing is happening in this country today, that we're, you know, where the oligarchs are running things and the military, and there, there's got to be a revolution, and either it can be owned by Donald Trump, or we can try to, you know, um, marshal and mobilize that energy uh, for a more idealistic vision of our country. And, um, you know, when my father ran in 68, he put together a populist coalition of left and right. And, you know, and he was able to do that. He was able to do that by telling the truth to people, including truths that they didn't want to hear. And he was, you know, on the last day, day that he died, the day he died, he won the, the most urban state in our country, which was California, and the most rural state, which was South Dakota. He had bridged the gap between, and when I, you know, I, I was with him when he died in Los Angeles, and then we flew his body back on US 2, on, you know, Humphrey's plane, Vice President Humphrey's plane to New York, and, and then we waked him in St. Patrick Cathedral, and the crowds just, you know, were, it was like a flood of humanity on that, um, on the, you know, on that street, the whole street was blocked, people standing 10 feet deep for half a mile. And then we brought him from Penn Station in Washington. We, he was in the caboose and the coffin, and then there was a, a train that we took to Union Station in Washington, D.C. And uh, the people on that train were the people who would have been probably the one of the, the, the greatest governments in, in United States history. And um, and my, uh, and that train ride was supposed to take two and a half hours. It took seven and a half hours. Because there were two million people on the tracks, and they were, you know, they were white people. They were mil people in military uniforms. They were Boy Scouts standing, saluting. I remember passing a, a little league field where all of the people, all the kids on both sides, were standing, holding their gloves and saluting, um, and the coaches and all the people in the stand. There were Catholic priests. There was rabbis. I remember passing in Delaware. I was fourteen at that time. Um, a, uh, a pickup truck that had six or seven nuns uh, in their habits standing in the bed of the truck and they were and they were waving rosaries and handkerchiefs at us in the in the major urban centers the, the train stations we crept through at a crawl to avoid hitting people but they were just jammed with people almost all black people in Trenton and Newark and Baltimore and Wilmington um, uh, and they were singing the Battle of the Hymn of the Republic. We had that, the windows open on the train. And uh, and then there were hippies and tie-dyed T-shirts. You can go look at the people. There's photographs of the people lining that track. You know, you can call them up on, over there, James, if you if you if, if you if you find them. But anyway, when we got to Washington, uh, President Johnson was met us there and took us um, in a convoy. We rode past the mall, and when we got to the mall, there was there, my uncle, or my father, and Martin Luther King had been talking together, and they were they were talking about how do we get poor people the right, you know, because the Vietnam War was sucking all the money out of the war in poverty, and they said, how do we get poor people to get politically mobilized? 
And they said, we need to call them all to Washington, D.C. and have them camp here until Congress acts. And so King had died two months before. My father was now dead. Marion Wright Edelman had brought all these people there, you know, working for the two of them. And there were thousands of men that were encamped in these plastic shanties on the mall. And they all came to the sidewalk and they bowed their heads and held their hats to their chests. And we drove slowly past them up to Arlington Cemetery. And we buried my dad next to my uncle four years later. So that was 68. Four years later in 1972, I was studying uh, politics in Boston and, and American history. And I came across this demographic data that showed that the people, the white people who had lined that train track and who had supported my father in Maryland and Delaware, Pennsylvania, um, and New Jersey during the 68 campaign in the primaries, in 72 did not vote for George McGovern, who was very uh, simpatico with my father on all these issues, very much aligned. But they voted instead for George Wallace, who was absolutely antithetical to everything my father believed is a rampant fierce segregationist and i knew him very well in his old age um, but it occurred to me then and it struck me many times since that every nation like every individual has a darker side and a lighter side and the easiest thing for a politician to do is to appeal to our hatred and our bigotry and our fear you know and our xenophobia and you know our mistrust of immigrants or whatever and that every once in a while you know politicians like my dad come along who um who have a different approach which is to uh, get people persuade people one way or another to transcend their narrow self-interest and see themselves as part of a community as part of a a larger adventure you know and and be willing to take risks for neighbors who don't look like them because they feel like they're part of something important you know part of maybe reconstructing our country and making it live up to its promises and 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 to avoid the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind and my dad was able to do that successfully and i think you know that we have that opportunity now and you know i you know that's why i my father was able to do something that made people find the hero in themselves, you know, people to take risks, because it takes a risk to make a sacrifice or to believe in your community. And my dad was able to do that. And, you know, I would, I would like to be able to do that to this country, for this country. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's the only way that we're going to save this country if people can find a way to unify you know, people from the left and the right, and to build the kind of populist movement that my father was able to build in 1968. What has it been like? Uh, what, what, what has the experience been like for you of making the decision to run and then now running and having doing these interviews and seeing all these hit pieces written about you and even in the New York Times? What has this been like? Well, at least they're writing something about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'll tell you what, it's been, it's, been, it's been wonderful. It's been amazing. And, you know, I, I'm, uh, my biggest worry is Cheryl because um, she, uh, and she's happy to it. Your wife. Yeah. And she says to send you her, her love. Um, but 
she uh but you know it's been good i mean i i we've gotten extraordinary traction and the thing is that i'm not going to win this by winning the sympathies of the mainstream media um i i really think these podcasts are, have the capacity to change uh politics in this country this year and you know it's interesting because in 1960 my uncle uh president kennedy had you know realized that this new media called television which had never been used in a political campaign before was a media that was very friendly to him for a variety of reasons in other words he was it was a media that he was able to master pretty well that um people like to see him on it and uh and it won him the election which is one of the narrow, narrowest election at that time in american history and then in 2016 donald trump recognized a new technology which was twitter which uh that he could communicate in this kind of way that was unique to him you know these kind of sound bites very powerful sound bite um you know outrageous remarks on twitter that got him these you know that, that built him an audience a very loyal and everybody thought he was crazy um but he was able to take that technology and really you know turn it into a and weaponize it uh, politically well also and I, that and the go ahead please well i i'm not saying that's the only thing but that he did he yeah. had a lot of other stuff going for him but but he had a new media as i'm what i'm saying and i think this year the podcasts are going to be uh, are going to you know have the potential to revolutionize american politics because um for the first time you can end run the mainstream media i mean i i was talking to somebody about this the other day that uh, cnn now has a viewership of i think something like three hundred fifty thousand people a night um tucker when he was at fox had a had a viewership at the end about 4.5 million so he was 10 times the biggest cnn and you at you know your your top uh like mcculloch i think you were getting almost 40 million or something maybe more i don't know what it is but you are then 10 times bigger than tucker and 100 times bigger than cnn and there you know there's a lot of people out there and this is for me it's a good media you know for a variety of reasons and i've been able to um reach a lot of people you know uh, it's a very very populous media it reaches people who are on the far left and on the far right and it kind of unifies them and those are you know the audience that i think i am i'm i'm most likely to if i i mean my campaign is about uh bringing those two groups together the left and the right and a populist movement and i think podcasts may be a formula for doing that i think you're probably right um and i think there's a lot more that are going to be willing to have you on the question is going to be like what happens with those episodes on youtube <laughs> yeah you know we don't have to worry about this with that with this episode but what it you know with other people they would people that i know would probably be interested in having you on but you know youtube dangles those strikes over your head and they yeah, also dangle demonetization over your head which is uh so say if you have an episode that's very popular but controversial they'll they can demonetize that episode and if they choose to do so you lose all the revenue which could be pretty substantial and so people self-censor 
because of that. Yeah, but the, the thing is that I'm not running on vaccines. Yeah, no, I understand that. Uh, it doesn't I, matter. You know, if, if, if people, the, the only time that I will talk about vaccines is if somebody asks me about it. If you wanted to do this whole interview and never talk about vaccines, it would be yeah. fine for me. I mean, I think I'll, I'll never do an interview like this again, probably, because this is the only place I could do this and really sort of lay out the whole thing. Otherwise, this would not survive for two minutes. Right. And so I don't think I'll do that, but I don't need to do that because I, you know, I have a lot of other issues and my central issue is how do you rebuild the middle class and how do we get out of these forever wars? How do you get out of the Ukraine war? The, the Ukraine war is easy to get out of. I mean, the Russians have been wanting to settle that war from the beginning. Really? Yeah. I mean, the Minsk Accords was a settlement. And that was, you know, that we basically, you know, encouraged Zelensky. As Zelensky ran in 2019, here's a guy who's a comedian and a, uh, you know, and an actor. Um, which I'm not saying in a disparaging way, but he's probably you know, should. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is those things too. Yeah. So, um, but he, uh, he, he. So why, how did he? How did he win with seventy percent of the vote? He won because he ran on a peace platform, promising to sign the Minsk Accords, which was a, an agreement that Russia, France, and Germany had all agreed to, which would have left Donbass as part of of. Uh, Ukraine as autonomous regions, so they can now enjoy their own language, the ethnic Russians, and they and they and protect themselves from attack by the central government, which was U.S. you know installed central government, and um, and that NATO would stay out of the Ukraine, and that's what the Russians wanted—a pledge that NATO will never go in, which we should have made for them. We shouldn't. We have no business putting NATO in the Ukraine. We promised we'd never do that. We committed to it. And we've repeatedly violated those promises. And there's people in the White House who want this war. And they've said it repeatedly. Even President Biden has said the purpose of the war is to depose Vladimir Putin. And, um, and what? Install a puppet government? Install well, that's the thing. Is what, like, that's what, what the, the same people who, who got rid of Libya. Saddam Hussein yeah. caused us $8 trillion. And Iraq is now worse off than we found it. We killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein. We we forced Iraq into you know this bondage to Iran, where they're now a proxy state of Iran. We've reduced that nation into a you know a, this incoherent mess that is just a, a you know a battle between Shia and Sunni despots. We created ISIS. We then had to do the Syrian war, the Yemen war, the Afghan, Pakistan. We drove two million refugees into Europe and destabilized every democracy in Europe for the next two generations and created Brexit. That's what we got for that $8 trillion that, you know, and the ravaged middle class in our country. The same people who we thought, the neocons, who ran that operation, lied to us about weapons of mass destruction, tricked us into that war, and who we thought were now out of government forever, pariahs, you know, in disgrace, they're now all back in the Biden administration with a new project. And, you know, Lloyd Austin, who's Biden's defense secretary, said uh, the purpose of the war for us is to exhaust Russia and degrade its capacity to fight any place in the world. Well, that's not good for the Ukraine, because the way we're exhausting Russia is by butchering to uh, 350,000 Ukrainian kids. I mean, we have turned that nation into an abattoir of death for the flower of Ukrainian youth. 
in a, in a geopolitical, and I'm not excusing Blue Putin. Putin is a thug, a monster, a gangster who illegally invaded and didn't need to. But we need to take responsibility for the provocations which we have, you know, which these neocons have been have been provoking for, you know, for over a decade. And by the way, um, the reason we're in that war is because Americans are good people. And, you know, we were convinced, granted, we're using these kind of comic book depictions, that they're now, you know, the military industrial complex is, is uh, now expert at, at selling from us of this kind of good versus evil, you know, all, 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 this, this whole thing that gets us into these wars. And keep, you know, that, that war is a money laundering racket for, for the military contractors. The money is going there and then coming right back, and then they all go on CNN, you know, the generals, etc. who, if you look at their resumes, they're all working for General Dynamics and the military contractors, and, and they tell us we need to be in this war and tell us horror stories, etc. Uh, but we're there because Americans are good people and they have compassion and they want to redress a wrong but. And by the way, my son went over there and fought, yeah, you know, and he joined, you know, we, he did, without telling us, he left law school and, and a summer job and he went over there and joined the Foreign Legion and worked, fought as a, as a machine gunner for a, a special forces unit during the Kharkiv offensive. So, you know, I, I look, I, I, the Ukrainian people, the valor of those people and the, you know, the anguish that they're suffering is, is beyond, you know, any description. But um, we need to look at our role in it and we need to look for roads to peace, you know, and not, not try to, and, and try to end the killing. There's a 30 to 80,000 Russians with kids who have died there too, and you know we shouldn't be exulting over that. We we should be trying to find find us out. The U.S. should be the grown up in the room that's saying, "How do we stop the bloodshed?" That's what we should be doing over there, and not to achieve these. And and I'll just say one other thing, Joe. And that war's cost us 113 billion dollars. That's the commitment so far. We, our CDC's entire budget is 12 billion a year. Uh, um, FDA or, or EPA's entire budget is about $12 billion. We have 57% of our, our people in this country cannot put their hands on $1,000 to, if they need to, if there's an emergency. 25% of Americans are hungry now, are not getting enough food. I have a friend who is a commercial fisherman who has spent his life on, you know, on the fisheries, had a business, put it together, but because it's a private business, because he was working a lot for other people, he doesn't have benefits. He now has a disability. His son-in-law runs a business, but can't support him. He has a disability, and, um, and he has been surviving on $280 worth of food stamps from the SNAP program. And that doesn't take you too far. But on March 1st, he got a robocall from the government saying your food stamps have been cut by 90%. You're now getting $25 a month. Try feeding yourself on 90 cents a day in this country. 30 million Americans got that call. These are And that same month, we bailed out, we, we printed 300 billion new dollars to bail out the Silicon Valley Bank. And we topped off the Ukraine war commitment to 113 billion. So 
We got lots of money for the, for the military industrial complex, lots of money for the bankers, you know, the banksters. But we're starving Americans to death. Starving them. And his, because of all the inflation, we spent $16 trillion on the lockdown. We wasted, got nothing for it. $8 trillion on the Ukraine war. That's $24 trillion that they had to print to pay for nothing. That money, the way they're paying it back, they're not going to tell us they're raised taxes because you can't do that. It's a hidden tax called inflation, and it hits the poor and the middle class, and it has dismantled the middle class in this country. Well, my friends, food bills for basic foods like chicken, dairy, and eggs has increased 76% in two years to pay for the Iraq war, or the Ukraine war, the Iraq war, and the lockdowns. His food prices are going up. And now the government's telling him, while we have plenty of money for the military and the banks, we don't have it for Americans who are, you know, hardworking people. And, uh, you know, something is not right. We don't have, we're in a crisis in this country. We're in, you know, and we need to start looking at, we need to start unraveling the empire. We have 800 bases abroad. We were told after, in 1992, when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were told we were going to get a peace dividend, that the military expenditure was going to, going to go from $600 billion a year to $200 billion, and we were going to stop making billion-dollar stealth bombers that can't fly in the rain, and that we're going to take that money home and build schools with it. And no, no, no. If, if people, the, the only time that I will talk about vaccines is if somebody asks me about it. If you wanted to do this whole interview and never talk about vaccines, it would be fine for me. I mean, I think I'll, I'll never do an interview like this again, probably, because this is the only place I could do this and really sort of lay out the whole thing. Otherwise, this would not survive for two minutes. Right. And so I don't think I'll do that, but I don't need to do that because, I, you know, I have a lot of other issues. And my central issue is how do you rebuild the middle class and how do we get out of these forever wars? How do you get out of the Ukraine war? The, the Ukraine war is easy to get out of. I mean, the Russians have been wanting to settle that war from the beginning. Really? Yeah. I mean, the Minsk Accords was a settlement. And that was, you know, that we basically, you know, encouraged Zelensky. Zelensky ran in 2019. Here's a guy who's a comedian and a, uh, you know, and an actor. Um, which I'm not saying in a disparaging way, but he's... You probably you know, should. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is those things, too. Yeah. So, um, but he, uh, he, he... So why, how, did he win, how did he win with 70% of the vote? He won because he ran on a peace platform promising to sign the Minsk Accords, which was a, an agreement that Russia, France, and Germany had all agreed to, which would have left Donbass as part of... of uh, Ukraine as an autonomous region, so they can now enjoy their own language, the ethnic Russians, and they and they and protect themselves from attack by the central government, which was U.S. you know installed central government, and um and that NATO would stay out of the Ukraine, and that's what the Russians wanted, a pledge that NATO will never go in, which we should have made for them. We shouldn't. We have no business putting NATO in the Ukraine. We promised we'd never do that. We committed to it. And we've repeatedly violated those promises, and there's people in the White House who want this war, and they've said it repeatedly. Even President Biden has said the purpose of the war is to depose Vladimir Putin. 
And, um, and what, install puppet government? Well, that's the thing. Is what, like that's what, what the, the same people who, who got rid of Libya. Saddam Hussein, yeah. it cost us $8 trillion. And Iraq is now worse off than we found it. We killed more Iraqis than Saddam Hussein. We, we forced Iraq into you know this bondage to Iran, where they're now a proxy state of Iran. We've reduced that nation into a you know a, this incoherent mess that is just a, a you know a battle between Shia and Sunni despots. We created ISIS. We then had to do the Syrian war, the Yemen war, the Afghan, Pakistan. We drove two million refugees into Europe and destabilized every democracy in Europe for the next two generations and created Brexit. That's what we got for that eight trillion dollars that you know and the ravaged middle class in our country. The same people who we thought, the neocons, who ran that operation, lied to us about weapons of mass destruction, tricked us into that war, and who we thought were now out of government forever, pariahs, you know, in disgrace, they're now all back in the Biden administration with a new project. And, you know, Lloyd Austin, who's Biden's defense secretary, said uh, the purpose of the war for us is to exhaust Russia and degrade its capacity to fight any place in the world. Well, that's not good for the Ukraine, because the way we're exhausting Russia is by butchering to uh, 350,000 Ukrainian kids. I mean, we have turned that nation into an abattoir of death for the flower of Ukrainian youth. In a, in a geopolitical, and I'm not excusing Blue Putin. Putin is a thug, a monster, a gangster who illegally invaded and didn't need to. But we need to take responsibility for the provocations which we have, you know, which these neocons have been have been provoking for, you know, for over a decade. And by the way, um, the reason we're in that war is because Americans are good people. And, you know, we were convinced, granted, we're using these kind of comic book depictions, that they're now, you know, the military industrial complex is, is uh, now expert at, at selling from us of this kind of good versus evil, you know, this, this whole thing that gets us into these wars. And keep, you know, that, that war is a money laundering racket for for the military contractors, the money is going there and then coming right back, and then they all go on CNN, you know, the generals, etc. Who, if you look at their resumes, they're all working for General Dynamics and the military contractors, and and they tell us we need to be in this war and tell us horror stories, etc. Uh, but we're there because Americans are good people and they have compassion and they want to redress a wrong. But and by the way, my son went over there and fought. Yeah, you know, and he joined, you know, we, he did, without telling us, he left law school and, and a summer job and he went over there and joined the Foreign Legion and worked, fought as a, as a machine gunner for a, a special forces unit during the Kharkiv offensive. So, you know, I, I look, I, I, the Ukrainian people, the valor of those people and the, you know, the anguish that they're suffering is, is, is beyond, you know, any description. But, um, we need to look at our role in it, and we need to look for roads to peace, you know, and not not try and, and try to end the killing. There's thirty to eighty thousand Russians with kids who have died there too, and you know we shouldn't be exulting over that. We we should be trying to find find out the U.S. should be the grown up in the room that's saying how do we stop the bloodshed. That's what we should be doing over there, and not to achieve these. And and I'll just say one other thing, Joe. And that war's cost us $113 billion. That's the commitment so far. 
we, CDC's entire budget is $12 billion a year. Uh, um, FDA or, or EPA's entire budget is about $12 billion. We have 57% of our, our people in this country cannot put their hands on $1,000 to, if they need to, if there's an emergency. 25% of Americans are hungry now, are not getting enough food. I have a friend who is a commercial fisherman who spent his life on, you know, on the fisheries, had a business, put it together, but because it's a private business, because he was working a lot for other people, he doesn't have benefits. He now has a disability. His son-in-law runs the business but can't support him. He has a disability, and, um, and he has been surviving on $280 worth of food stamps from the SNAP program. And that doesn't take you too far. But on March 1st, he got a robocall from the government saying your food stamps have been cut by 90%. You're now getting $25 a month. Try feeding yourself on 90 cents a day in this country. 30 million Americans got that call. These are people, and that same month, we bailed out, we, we printed 300 billion new dollars to bail out the Silicon Valley Bank. And we topped off the Ukraine war commitment to 113 billion. So we got lots of money for the, for the military industrial complex, lots of money for the bankers, you know, the banksters, but we're starving Americans to death, starving them. And his, because of all the inflation, we spent 16 trillion on the lockdown. We wasted, got nothing for it. Eight trillion on the Ukraine war. That's twenty-four trillion dollars that they had to print to pay for nothing. That money, the way they're paying it back, they're not going to tell us they're raised taxes because you can't do that. It's a hidden tax called inflation, and it hits the poor and the middle class, and it has dismantled the middle class in this country. Well, my friends, food bills for basic foods like chicken, dairy, and eggs has increased seventy-six percent in two years. To pay for the Iraq war, or the Ukraine war, the Iraq war, and the lockdowns. His food prices are going up. And now the government's telling him, while we have plenty of money for the military and the banks, we don't have it for Americans who are, you know, hardworking people. And, uh, you know, something is not right. We, we don't have, we're in a crisis in this country. We're in, you know, and we need to start looking at, we need to start unraveling the empire. We have 800 bases abroad. We were told after, in 1992, when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were told we were going to get a peace dividend, that the military expenditure was going to, going to go from $600 billion a year to $200 billion, and we were going to stop making billion-dollar stealth bombers that can't fly in the rain, and that we're going to take that money home and build schools with it and build infrastructure and give health care, good health care, in the inner cities and then none of that happened and today instead of going down to 200 billion it's gone up the total military expenditure if you include national security is 1.3 billion and it hasn't made us safer it's made us worse off you know what three trillion 1.3 trillion if you include yeah i think you said billion no 1.3 trillion if you include national you know this this security apparatus and you know all this stuff that you have to walk through at the airports and if you include uh, the 300 billion uh, to uh, the veterans, which you can't cut, 
you know, the veterans are, you know, are, we have 29 a day killing themselves. You know, this, this, these wars are not good for our country or our kids, and we need to stop being an empire and instead come home, rebuild the middle class, and then project economic power the way the Chinese do, who are eating our lunch because they know not to prevent to project military power, they to project economic power. That's how you win the hearts and minds of the world and national security. My my uncle John Kennedy, you know, did that. He he refused to go to war. So he, he was surrounded by military industrial complex and um, and he learned very early at, at an intelligence apparatus that he realized early on that the purpose of the CIA and the intelligence apparatus was to create a constant pipeline of new wars for the, for the military-industrial complex. The day, uh, three days before he took the oath of office, Eisenhower, who was the outgoing president, gave what is probably the most important speech in American history, which was, you know, where he warned against the military-industrial complex. I was at my uncle's inauguration. I was in Washington that day as a, you know, a six-year-old boy, and I was sitting on the stands behind him, during, in front of him during his inauguration, and he understood that. And two months later, the military and intelligence came to him and said, we got it, uh, we got it invade Cuba. And he was like, I'm not going to Cuba and I'm not going to let the military. And they said, well, we got all these Cubans trained and they're going to go attack Castro. And he said, well, we're, we can't, the U.S. government can't be doing that. We can't be attacking. We, we, I don't like what Castro is doing down there, but the, it's not the United States job to dictate what kind of governments other countries have. And they said, uh, well, as soon as they land, there's going to be a, a big revolution. Everybody's going to rise up and they're going to overthrow Castro. And he said, well, you can't use the U.S. military. And they ended up bringing those guys over with uh, United Fruit boats. And, and in the middle of it, in the night, they came to him and said, they're getting wiped out on the beach and you need to send in the military and invade. And he said, we're not going to do it. And he, he stepped out of that meeting and he realized they had been lying to him and trying to trick him. And he said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And um, and then, you know, for the next a thousand days of his presidency, he was at war with his military and, and, and intelligence apparatus. They tried to get him to go into Laos. He said, no. They tried to get him to go into Vietnam with the combat troops. They said that we need 250,000 combat troops. He refused. Everybody around him wanted to go into Vietnam. He said 16,000 military advisors, as fewer people than he said, to get James Meredith into Ole Miss in Jackson, Mississippi, to get one black man into school. He said fewer in Vietnam. They were allowed to fight. Many of them did. They violated the rules of engagement. In October of 1963, he heard that some of his Green Berets have been killed over there. And he said, I want a total casualty list from Vietnam. And his aide came to him and said, 75 Americans have died. And he said, that's too many. And he signed that day a national security order ordering all troops out of Vietnam, U.S. troops. The first thousand over the next month, and then the rest by the beginning of 1965. And... Um, and then a, week, a month later, he was killed.
So, um, but what his view was is that he believed that the view of Americanship abroad should not be, you know, a soldier with a gun. It should be a Peace Corps volunteer building, you know, wells, and it should be USAID helping poor people, and it should be Alliance for Progress building middle class. And that's what he did. And he started the Kennedy Milk Program to, to you know, give nutrition to poor kids all over the world. As a result of that, in Africa today, there are more statues to John Kennedy, more boulevards named after him, more hospitals, schools, universities, avenues, and all the major cities named after him than any other president. And that is the, 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 the Chinese have taken that template and done the same thing now. And they are, you know, all these countries that were supposedly allied with us are now realigned with the Chinese and they're switching to their currency because the Chinese are not there to kill people. They're there, you know, to, to build roads, to build universities, to build colleges. And it turns out that people like that a lot more. And, you know, we should be pro projecting economic power around the globe and not military power. It will make us much stronger. If, but what do you think happens when you get into office? Like, if you're, you're, you're talking about your uncle who's assassinated and you believe the intelligence agencies were a part of that, what happens to you? Well, i got to be careful. And I'm aware of that, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm aware of the, of that danger, and, uh, you know, I don't live in fear of it, um, you know, at all, but I'm not stupid about it, and I take precautions, so, you know, I, um, I do things that I don't want to do, in order, and I live my life now, you know, in ways that I don't want to, I like to be out you know, shaking hands with people and going alone into communities. Um, and, uh, and you know, there's things I can't do anymore, you know, so, and, but I do it because I know, um, I know those risks exist. And I know that I, you know, pose a big threat to many vested interests that, um, you know, uh, and, and that there, that there is a danger, a danger in that. Well, uh, I think I think we'll wrap it up here. That was uh, three hours. <laughs> Joe, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate talking to you. Uh, I appreciate your your courage and uh, your conviction and just the way you think. Appreciate it very much. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.